CIA search for Noah's Ark, government interest in how the pyramids were built, official interest in the Dead Sea Scrolls and Atlantis and all sorts of, you know, sort of weird stuff. Whatever it is, an intelligence agency doesn't spend 50 years secretly researching and photographing the wooden remains of an old boat. So there's several examples of somebody or people having apparent knowledge of ancient Martian anomalies long before they were officially acknowledged, if you like. They were actually, he said, researching the overall UFO phenomenon and had come to the conclusion that all the sort of significant cases actually had nothing to do with alien visitation, but it would, they viewed it as like a satanic deception. These people in the UFO field who believe the government's hiding the truth and they're saying to me, well, Nick, it might have been better if you'd hidden the story. You know, what? That's, that's one of ridiculous. the biggest ironies. That's one of the biggest ironies of all that there were people who are saying you should have acted with self-censorship because it's too reckless and dangerous a story to tell, whether true or not. And I was like, well, basically, you know, off. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. We have got an absolute barn burner of a program for you, my friends, as we welcome back prolific Fortean researcher and a great friend of the program, Nick Redfern, who's making his long overdue return to BOA Audio with a marathon conversation covering one of his most recent books, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, as well as a previous book, Final Events, which may have profound meaning for the UFO enigma. In the first half of the conversation, which covers The Pyramids and the Pentagon, we'll be discussing stories that are truly strange, including rumors of a Bible being found in the Roswell crash, CIA interest in Noah's Ark, odd references to Martian anomalies found in old literature, which may have actually come from the Voynich Manuscript, as well as an overall look at why the government may be looking at ancient mysteries and what they may have found. In the latter half of the conversation, we are going to be covering Nick's 2010 book, Final Events and we'll delve into the bizarre story detailed in the book of a government think tank dubbed the Collins Elite, which studied UFOs and determined that they were demonic in origin. I found this story to be absolutely chilling and breathtaking, so we're going to be digging really deeply into this one, folks, as we discuss how Nick first heard of the story various aspects of the Collins elite's findings, notably their thoughts on Roswell, abductions, and MJ-12, and we're going to have some meta-analysis on what the demonic UFO theory means for UFO research, as well as how ufology reacted to final events 
when it was released a couple of years ago. Altogether, it is a brisk conversation that is also jam-packed with amazing stories, intriguing anecdotes, and thoughtful analysis about a myriad of paranormal mysteries with a true trailblazer in the field of esoteric studies, Nick Redfern. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Nick Redfern, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Nick Redfern started his writing career as an 18-year-old in 1982 on a British-based music, fashion, and entertainment magazine called Zero. His interest in UFOs was prompted by his father, who worked on radar with the British Royal Air Force, and who was personally aware of several UFO encounters investigated by the British government in the 1950s. Nick is the author of a number of books on unsolved mysteries and UFOs, including A Covert Agenda, The FBI Files, Cosmic Crashes, Strange Secrets, co-written with Andy Roberts, Three Men Seeking Monsters, Body Snatchers in the Desert, On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, Celebrity Secrets, Monkey Man, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, There's Something in the Woods, Science Fiction Secrets, Contactees, Monsters of Texas, The NASA Conspiracies, The Real Men in Black, Keep Out, Top Secret Places Governments Don't Want You to Know About, The World's Weirdest Places, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, as well as Final Events. Plus, I'm sure there are many others that were not listed here. Nick has written for UFO Magazine, Fortean Times, Fate Magazine, and the British Daily Express newspaper, and has appeared on numerous television programs, including the History Channel's Ancient Aliens, Monster Quest, and UFO Hunters, National Geographic Channel's The Truth About UFOs, and Paranatural, and Sci-Fi Channel's Proof Positive. His website is www.nickredfernfortian.blogspot.com. Pretty simple, all one word. Nickredfernfortian.blogspot.com. Check it out. And with all that said, my friends, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on August 30th, 2012. Nick Redfern, talking about the pyramids and the Pentagon as well as final events on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Very, very excited about this program, folks. It has been way too long. I looked back, actually, uh, into the archive, and the last time our guest here was on for a pure paranormal discussion without the, the trappings of a, of a New Year's uh, theme was way back on December 30th, 2007, so almost five years, which is just shameful on my part. It really has been way too long since we've had him on the program. He's a good friend of mine, someone who I consider really uh, one of the most amazing people in all of the paranormal world, and, and I'm not just blowing smoke up his ass here. I mean, he I've, I've called him at the end of the program before. He is really the Brad Steiger of this generation, putting out so many books, putting out a variety of, of topics that he's covering. He's not just doing a whole bunch of UFO books at once. He's doing all kinds of different stuff and putting out an amazing array of material constantly. And uh, so I talk to a lot of people in the paranormal community who are really in awe of his prolific abilities and research uh, capabilities. So I, I cannot put him over enough. And as I said, he's a good friend of mine. He's really uh, 
probably it's, it's difficult for me to be friends with him because I'm in so awe of his talent. And and like I said, I'm not blowing smoke up his ass here. This is all all true, and it's been a real thrill to get him back here on the program to uh, really get into a lot of this stuff altogether. Of course, I am talking about the amazing Nick Redfern. He is uh, the author of the new book, The Pyramids and the Pentagon. That one just came out this summer. And he's also the author of 20, let me see here on the back, it says, more than 20 other books. And, and you know, that number just keeps growing year after year. So welcome back to the program, Nick. Uh, it's going to be a real delight here to talk about all these different subjects. Hey, Tim, how's it going? I can't complain. Uh, you know, I'm very happy Good. that we finally got around to doing this. I, I think I told you on uh, one of the year-end shows a couple of years ago that it was long overdue, and it still took a couple of years. So uh, I'm psyched that we finally well, I guess, you know, the, yeah. There is also the fact, you know, we get to hang out. Well, we used to get to hang out quite a bit at the, you know, the yearly conferences as well, the, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Boston ones. So, um, you know, I guess it's, uh, you know, in that sense, it's not like uh, it's been technically five years. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People should check out also the blog, Nick Redfern, com. I should actually, I'll bring that up at the end of the show uh, if we if we have time, that the new post, uh, 10 Things That You Follow Just Do Not Do, which is an awesome uh, an awesome post that you just put out. But I guess, you know, give us a little, uh, little thumbnail on what you've been up to in the past few years. Uh, you've had a number of books come out. You know, give us sort of a little update for the folks who uh, haven't heard from you in a while. Yeah, sure. Well, um, over the course of about the last two years, I mean, I've done various books. Um, the Real Men in Black, which is sort of a study, um, obviously, of the Men in Black phenomenon. You know, I wrote one about six years ago for Patrick Weege's anomalous books called On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, mm-hmm. which was a study of sort of the government side of the Men in Black. But the, the one I had out in 2011, The Real Men in Black, that kind of looked more at the sort of paranormal side, you know, these weirder... Uh, odd-looking men in black, you know, these sort of skinny, pale, weird types that seem more paranormal-based, you know, that were sort of heavily involved in the Mothman saga and things like that. And so, you know, I address various theories, you know, are they aliens, are they interdimensional time travelers, demons, tulpas, you know, what are they? So that one was sort of like, um, you know, like a sister-type book, even, if it was, even though it was a different publisher, you know, it was sort of a sister book to the other one where... Yeah. One was the government angle, one was the paranormal angle. Um, then um, after that, I had Keep Out published, which was like a study of secret installations like Area 51, Hangar 18, the Russian equivalent of Hangar 18, the British equivalent, etc., etc. Yeah. And um, this year, I've had a couple of books out, um, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, uh, which is the new one, and then... Later this year, just in time for Halloween, I've got one called The World, the World's Weirdest Places, which is sort of my top 25 favorite paranormal hotspots, I guess, around the planet. So, uh, and, you know, doing the usual stuff, blogging, lecturing, mm-hmm. trying to stay out of trouble, you know. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> or trying to get into trouble, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I mean... Uh... You're definitely an inspiration for me and, and for a lot of the listeners in the show because I've preached on this show uh, many, many times, sort of having to have this array of, of interests, having to be able to look at all this different stuff. And just like you said, you know, you've got the Men in Black thing, you've got secret bases, you've got now with this new one, uh, the Pyramids and the Pentagon, talking about all kinds of ancient stuff and the government interest in it. So, I mean, it's quite a varied palette of stuff. So I'm, oh, well, I'm really I'm impressed. Mean- well, I appreciate that, Tim. Thanks. And I mean, I guess I'm one of these people where I don't sort of feel 
pigeonholed or feel need to be pigeonholed into like, oh, he's a UFO researcher, or he's a cryptozoologist, or she's, you know, an abduction researcher. I sort of consider myself, if I've got an interest in it and it's weird, I'll research and write about it. You know, I don't feel there's any sort of conflict of credibility or not, you know, by doing a book on Bigfoot, then one on Area 51, then one on the Men in Black, and then one on Lake Monsters, you know, it's like... But sometimes you do find that where people don't like, authors particularly, don't like to go out that comfort zone of their particular aspect of the paranormal, if you like. And I've never, I've never really understood that. I, I, don't, I don't get that. Right, right, because there's such good and fresh sort of areas to investigate, yeah. too, that, that, you know, you bring out, like the, uh, the Men in Black stuff. And, and you didn't mention it, but, you know, you had the book on contactees a few years ago. So it's like... I forgot about that one. Yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there's so many areas uh, that, that I like that you research and look into and sort of bring to light a lot of this stuff. Now, the new one, as I said, uh, the Pyramids in the Pentagon, that's looking at the, the government's interest in old relics, old religious items... Uh, lost civilization, sort of like the, the culture of the ancients, the lost culture of the ancients, and, and the mysteries of those cultures, which I think is really interesting because, you know, it stands to reason, but it's something that I had never really looked into or considered that, of course, like the New Age community has a deep interest in that stuff, and it stands to reason, as I said, that, you know, that the government would, and it's fascinating that you've looked at that, and indeed the government did have quite an interest in all this old stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're sort of talking about, like you said, mystical relics, ancient civilizations, and of course, you know, the whole ancient astronaut scenario. And to be honest, that that's an area that, you know, although I've been interested in it since I was a kid, you know, when I was like 10, I think I had, you know, chariots of the gods or whatever, you know, for a birthday present, something like that. Um, and, but I'd never really written about this aspect of, you know, the paranormal or the UFO field, whatever you want to term it. Um, mainly because, you know, there were dozens of books already out there. Researchers like Von Daniken and Zechariah Sitchin who've been, you know, been digging into all this stuff for decades. Yeah. So, like, what was the point? And the answer is that there would be no point because I'd just be going over old ground. But the, the one area that I found you know, reading about reading about the phenomenon in general, you know, this whole ancient astronaut scenario or whatever, occasionally, you know, I'd pick up on little snippets of stories where there seemed to be an official interest. But, you know, it was like a paragraph in somebody's book which had never been taken any further, which was kind of odd. And then there was like a snippet in somebody else's book. Yeah. And as I put all these strands together, I realized that, you know, there were sort of 10 or 15 really interesting stories that if I sort of really dug into them, you know, there would be, you would turn into like a full-length book of, you know, chapters on this case or that case. And, and that's exactly what happened where I dug into these little snippets of tales and, you know, was able to sort of expand them into full-blown sections, sections and chapters on things like the CIA search for Noah's Ark, um, government interest in how the pyramids were built, official interest in the Dead Sea Scrolls and Atlantis and all sorts of, you know, sort of weird stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, and it fleshes out a lot of these mysteries, adds a whole other dimension to them, because it's like, they, it, it's flummoxing in the same way that the UFO mystery is, where it's like you get the impression that maybe the government knows, maybe there's answers out there that, <laughs> that are being hoarded yeah. away from from us. Well, you know, I think it makes sense in the sense that we know the government or government agencies have taken an interest in UFOs today and paranormal phenomena like remote viewing and ESP and all that sort of stuff. 
even things like Ouija boards, you know, the CIA was investigating in the 50s. So if they're investigating modern mysteries, why wouldn't they investigate, you know, ancient mysteries? I think the big thing is nobody sort of chiefly realized that there were these sort of clandestine projects going on, investigating, you know, the mysteries of the past. It's like it, it, we just went under the radar, if you like. Right, right, exactly. Now, I, I try to avoid sort of like hitting you with just like, okay, tell me this story or tell me that story, and, and so, sort of just like touched on some some things as I read the book that stood out to me, that things that I'd either never heard about or were particularly bizarre. Um, and, and one of the first things that, that really stood out to me was, uh, and I'm sure this story's been floated around in the uh, UFO mythos for years, but it's certainly one that I had never heard, which is surprising because I've read a lot of books. And that's this this tale of a Bible or some form of a Bible being found either in the Roswell crash or the Aztec mm. crash. And that to me was, was really like, whoa, you know, wow, this is amazing. So I guess... You know, talk a little bit about that that rumor, I guess you will, because obviously <laughs> it's 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 really not anything that we know for certain, but it's certainly. Oh no, weird. no, you're, you're right. Yeah, I mean, this this is probably one of the most controversial things I talk about in the book. You know, and I don't sort of shy away from pointing out that it's it is a rumor. It's it's an outrageously over the top story, <laughs> but it's one that, intriguingly enough, has been spread by people in the official world. And officially, and, and spread to people in the UFO research community. Um, so, in that sense, you know, it's sort of the onus is on us to investigate it because there are intriguing strands to it. Strands to it. Now, before I sort of get into it, you know, what I would say, this sort of relates to what you might call kind of like Dead Sea Scrolls allegedly found in a crash saucer mm -hmm. or saucers. Um, but one of the things I do point out in the book is that we can verify that in the same year as Roswell and only one year before the alleged Aztec crash in 48, that the CIA actually was interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, I, I talk about the story of a guy named Miles Copeland, a senior CIA operative who was based in Damascus in Syria in 47. And he was basically given by this sort of mysterious Bedouin-type character, one of these scrolls. And it basically made its way to the CIA and rumors got back to Copeland that um, it basically dealt with um, like prophecies all related to the book of Daniel, like future events, prophecies, strange dreams. And this is all the sort of stuff that has, you know, sort of caught the attention of the CIA over the years with things like its remote viewing and psychic spying mm -hmm. programs. So in that sense, you know, we can actually verify that the CIA was interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 47. But the story gets far more complicated and controversial because back in the 1980s, um, a UFO researcher named William Steinman, who was sort of obsessed pretty much with the Aztec story, this crash of an alleged UFO in Aztec, New Mexico, in March 1948, which I should hasten to add, you know, is a story that has as many believers as it does disbelievers. You know, Aztec is one of those really controversial yeah. cases that kind of polarizes people into the believers, the skeptics, and the outright debunkers, you know, just... Well, not so much debunkers. I would say, you know, believers and skeptics. Yeah. Probably yeah. the best way to do Yeah, to definitely word. polarizing is the, is the word for it. So yes. People are but on what's interesting... Yeah, and Steinman was given this story about how supposedly when the military got to the Aztec crash site and managed to access the saucer, they found this sort of ancient parchment 
inside written in what looked like a very archaic Middle Eastern language where certain portions of it could be deciphered or they, it seemed to resemble ancient Middle Eastern text, but other parts couldn't, it's suggesting it was an even older language, you know, that had been lost or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, that story was also told to a UFO researcher named Timothy Cooper in the mid-1990s. Cooper was someone who sort of received this second wave batch of so-called MJ-12 documents. You know, the original ones went to like Bill Moore, Stan Freeman, Jamie Chandray in the mid-80s. Cooper got, you know, hundreds of pages, possibly thousands, um, in the 90s, you know, which sort of amplified the, the story even further. And he was told a story about, not about Aztec, but supposedly a crash of a UFO in New Mexico, somewhere near the White Sands Missile Range. We're not sure if it actually means Roswell or not, actually, but, you know, the, 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 the general theme is, a, again, a UFO crash in the 40s in New Mexico with one of these ancient parchments on board. Now, again, the thing I point out in the book is that, you know, there are a lot of controversies surrounding Cooper's documents in the same way that, you know, the Aztec story provokes controversy. But... What we can say is that it seems somebody on the inside was intent on getting this story out, linking the Dead Sea Scrolls with crash sources. And, and of course, that the big question is why? You know, is it because there's some truth behind it? Or is it that somebody is spreading a like a fabricated story that is so outlandish that it'll dismiss and discredit everything else connected with those stories, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think it, it's hard, it's really hard to say. But, you know, as I said, the thing I find most intriguing is that there seems to be a concerted effort by insiders to get this story out there. And, you know, and I, and I don't believe it was done for no reason at all. You know, that, that, would, that would be even more illogical. Yeah. So there had to have been, you know, some sort of, like a modus operandi, if you like, behind it. But what that is... You know, that, that's that's the bigger and deeper question, I guess. Right, right. That's open to the, the speculation of everybody. So you can't really like. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's bizarre. It, it's it's like a Twilight Zone episode almost. You know, it's like an alien ship crashes, but then inside is this decidedly human <laughs> well, thing. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. But then you know, it's like why? I, I mean, I'm not saying it isn't a made-up story, but what I'm saying is, you know, why even spread that? That, that is the, you know, and it, it wasn't like it was massively spread throughout the entire UFO community because most people today don't even know that story. Right, right. It was actually quietly provided to Steinman and Cooper, you know. So that kind of makes you wonder as well, you know, what was, it wasn't like something that was, well, let's blitz the entire UFO community and spread this story and then we'll reveal it was a fake and they'll get even more discredited. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. That wasn't what happened. You know, if Cooper... And Steinman, the only two people it was given to, didn't ever go public. You know, the, we would not have known. And even then, neither Cooper nor Steinman really went massively public with it. You know, it just appeared in a few articles here and there. It certainly never made it, you know, to the books, um, um, you know, on a large scale or, you know, even the Internet to, to a significant degree. So. Right, yeah. Like I said, I'd never even heard that story, and, and I've heard a lot of stories, so... You know, that that really stood out to me as like, where did, you know, wow. <laughs> so I'm glad we <laughs> got to the bottom of that. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, that, that you talk a lot in the book about the whole Noah's Ark mystery. And, and just, yeah. it's really interesting that how furtive uh, the CIA was about their investigation into it. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, you... 
you bring to light a lot of uh, sort of official correspondence where it's clear that, like, they had obviously taken pictures and taken a look at this Noah's Ark thing, and other people kept asking about it, and they kept sort of being very circumspect about it to the point where yeah. you can kind of read between the lines, which is interesting in and of yeah. itself. Like, why... Like, why are they looking at Noah's Ark, and then why are they being so secretive about it? So it's like a dual mystery in a way. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, you know, the the, the Noah's Ark story, again, that, that sounds like a classic Raiders of the Lost Ark type thing. You know, Indiana Jones, this sort of, you know, people in government trying to find out the truth, not about the Ark of the Covenant, like in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but Noah's Ark, you know, very different type of Ark, but it's still like a an adventure story involving spies and, you know, covert operations, etc. Um, but it actually goes back to 1949 when a, a U.S. Air Force spy plane was flying over Turkey towards the border with the former Soviet Union. The Russians were building a new military base near the Turkish border. I mean, Turkey being, you know, friends to the West, the, the fear was this is going to sort of impact upon, you know, Western security. So this spy plane basically took off uh, from mainland Europe, um, headed across Turkey, and the guys on the plane actually used Mount Ararat as like a guiding point to get to this base. Um, but as they sort of flew over the top of the mountain, which is it's like 17,000 feet high, so at that point, you know, it's thick with ice and snow pretty much all year round. Right. Um, one of the guys reported seeing what looked like a wing-type structure sticking out of the ice and snow. Um, but it looked about 600 feet long, which is not sort of a type of thing you see every day, you know, a 600-foot-long wing of an aircraft or whatever. Um, so they got permission to sort of swing around and photograph it, which which they did. Um, as they were turning, one of the guys on the other side of the plane said that he could see on a slightly adjacent part of the mountain what looked like another large wing of pretty much a similar length. So, you know, if these were the wings of some sort of aerial craft, you know, they would have an overall width of 1,200 feet, you know, which... Yeah. Nobody was flying an aircraft with a wingspan of 1,200 feet, you know, back in 1949, or never mind today, you know, <laughs> never mind in 1949. Right, right. It's um, interesting, too, that it goes, if, you know, flies in the face of the idea of, of Noah's Ark being a boat, which is obviously something Well, that's the about. thing, Thank yeah. You. I mean, that's the big question. It's like, you know, if, it, if Noah's Ark, if the story is to be taken literally, and it shouldn't be because there are flood legends all around the world. You know, it's not just the Noah's Ark one. Most cultures have a flood legend and a story about their own gods or deities coming down and telling people to build huge arcs. So it's not like just one story, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, even if it was and the story was 100% accurate as it's related in the Bible, why on earth would an old, basically almost like a fossilized old boat, why would that interest the CIA? You know, arguably it wouldn't. So it suggests that if there's something weird on Mount Ararat, it goes beyond something that you would normally expect just to be of interest to, like, archaeologists, historians, etc. Right. Um, so these photographs basically went back into the Pentagon, vanished for years, but... What we know is that at least some of them reached the CIA because, you know, bear in mind this was an Air Force project that photographed them. But the CIA got involved in the early 50s, um, sent U-2 spy planes up, etc. And there are even stories about sort of high-flying spy balloons being sent over the mountain to photograph it. Um, and collated a lot of information. Now, that the problem is... You know, although I was able to actually get about 70 pages of material through the Freedom of Information Act, which, you know, I relate some of this in the book, 
um, we're, we're kind of limited. One or two of the photographs have actually now surfaced, and I reproduced one of these in the book, you know, which shows what looks like a dark colored object, you know, stuck in the ice. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're, we're sort of limited in, in what we know, but what we do know is intriguing enough. I mean, to give you an example of the sheer extent to which the CIA chased this story down, um, I talk about the files from the mid-70s where um, a new book was published um, on Noah's Ark, you know, and the author, as we all do, if you're an author, you know, when you've got a book out, you go out and promote it, whether it's at lectures, conferences, um, you know, or, or whatever. Yeah. And this particular author, um, his name was Fernand Navarra. He had a book published in Noah's Ark, on Noah's Ark, and he was promoting it at a shopping mall in Washington, D.C. in 75. And CIA files reveal, these are Freedom of Information Act files, that the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center actually sent out clandestinely people to sit in the audience and listen to him talking about his new book. And they actually talk in the documents about how, you know, listening to what the authors have got to say might help them resolve the ARC problem. Now, of course, and that's, that's a literal quote from the document where right. they say the ARC problem. And as I point out in the book, you know, how is it that an old wooden boat from thousands of years ago could be causing a problem for the CIA in the <laughs> 1970s? You know, yeah. that again suggests there's far more going on. Now, they never actually referred to it as Noah's Ark. It's called, officially in the Pentagon and the CIA, it's called the Ararat Anomaly. That's how they refer to it. Hmm. So, you know, it, it clearly seems to be the case that they're aware of something up there. The Turkish government's kind of reticent to allow people to go right to that specific place. And, of course, it's pretty much inaccessible anyway. Um, you know, we're talking about the very top of the mountain. Um, so, you know, that's why it, it remains an anomaly. But my view is that Whatever it is, an intelligence agency doesn't spend 50 years secretly researching and photographing, you know, the wooden remains of an old boat. Exactly, know? yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because I didn't get a chance to go back and, and sort of find, you know, where the story run, runs its course in, um, in the Pentagon, in the pyramids in the Pentagon. I think I've been saying the title of the book wrong the whole time. I think I've been saying the Pentagon and the Pyramids, so I'm going to... <laughs> no, it's the same thing. <laughs> um, but it, it's it, it's interesting because you would think in this age of these Google maps and satellites and everything mm -hmm. and the amazing advancement in, in photographic technology that, that this is a story that should at least have a modern twist to it or a mm. resolution in a sense. But as far as I know, I mean, I haven't heard anything about this Noah's Ark story uh, in years. So what well, do you think that's Well, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you, you know, if you Google Ararat Anomaly, you'll find quite a bit. And there are people who have actually photographed it, you know, um, with private satellites, that kind of thing. Oh, okay. You know, it's it's not like it's not in the public domain. But the problem is... Is interpreting it, you know, as to what it, the, the, the bigger problem, of course, is that, you know, although Turkey, people think of Turkey, and I think of desert and hot weather, etc. but the top of Mount Ararat is literally, when I say the top, you know, I'm not talking about the top 50 feet, I'm talking, you know, three or 4,000 feet, is thick with dense ice and snow all year round. Now, although the, it's almost like permanently snow and ice covered, Obviously, it shifts and changes depending on the severity of the weather. So, in other words, you know, at times, that the Ararat anomaly is sort of semi-buried and two-thirds buried or 90% buried. Then one little piece will 
you know, show through the ice again when it recedes slightly. So it's not like, you know, the original image in 1949 that you can still see everything exactly the same today. You know, it varies. And, of course, you know, the bigger problem is actually because, you know, it's so difficult to get there. The Turkish government don't want people digging around. Really, the only way to photograph it is by high-flying aircraft or satellite. And most of us don't have access to those things, you know. So um, that's made it a problem as well, unless you're sort of someone who can sort of, you know, order the you know, the, the the newest launch spy satellite, you know, to shift its orbit and say, hey, photograph that, you know, right, right. most of us just can't do that, you know. You think either we cheer for global warming or you think that, uh, <laughs> that the yeah, Turkish I mean, it's government the thing, of course. drag that thing out, I mean, then people would yeah. want to go to Turkey and see the Noah's Ark, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the big analogy, of course, it's like with Roswell, you know, you can actually visit the crash site, you're not going to find anything unless you're really lucky today, I'm sure, but you can go to the crash site. In, unless you're like a really experienced mountain climber, you've got the money and the funding and everything else to get to Turkey and get up the mountain, we cannot go to that, that crash site or landing site or whatever it is. But what I would say is that we do know, again from the files, that the U.S. intelligence community followed quite closely the sort of careers and statements of various people who were making claims that, you know, it was an ancient crashed UFO. And rather than you know, you know, that Noah's Ark was sort of a distorted legend of like a space ark that rather than having sort of two by two animals on board, you know, it was like a huge space ark preserving countless examples of animal and human DNA, right. you know, in, in kind of like a like a DNA type ark. And, and they followed that quite quite closely and seriously, you know, going out and reading books and sitting on lectures. So it seems to be the case, well, I'm sure there was probably you know, differences of opinions within the CIA and the military. You know, they're just human people like us, you know. Um, but I think the very fact that, you know, they were looking at the UFO angle as well clearly demonstrates that at some point there must have been discussions in, you know, the CIA or the Pentagon, hey, you know, could this be like an ancient Roswell or whatever, you know. And um, I'm pretty sure that was part of the reasoning behind the behind the, the study of it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Adam Davies. That's we'll send Adam Davies to go. Uh, now, there you go. That'd be a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> He's you not, might find Bigfoot up there or the Yeti. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, On vacation. <laughs> to to jump ahead a little bit to some of the other stuff in the book, uh, I found it interesting. You you devote quite a bit of uh, of of discussion to the Mars, the face on Mars, the Mars anomalies, and uh, what I found was interesting is that you sort of detail how. There were references and sort of hints to the Mars anomalies before the 71 Viking probe, and that extends all the way back to this thing with Jonathan Swift and sort of to tie it into earlier how I was just blown away by the the Bible at Roswell story. Uh, the story here that yeah. Jonathan Swift allegedly decoded parts of the Voynich manuscript was just yeah. insane to me. It's wild stuff. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I, I know I've thrown a lot on there on that, but uh, <laughs> oh, no, that's you know, fine. yeah, I mean, call where you want. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm sure everybody you know knows the story of the face on Mars, which looks like this eerily human-looking face staring up from the face of Mars, mm -hmm. uh, from the surface of Mars. I mean, uh, in this area called Cydonia. Now, you know, NASA don't avoid talking about, or doesn't avoid talking about the face on Mars. You know, but they're position or their official position at least public stance 
is that it's kind of like people seeing faces in clouds. You know, they say, well, when right. the shadows and the lights in the right place or the wrong place, depending on your perspective, it looks like a face. Um, you know, and everybody's seen things like this, you know, sort of Jesus in a bagel or whatever, you know. But <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we're always seeing. Right. You know, it's like if you were to put a, a spy satellite over Egypt and photograph the Sphinx, that would be photographing the Sphinx. It wouldn't just be a piece of stone that happens to look like a face. It is a face, you know. Exactly. So you can also make that argument about Mars. Now, what's interesting is that you're quite right. You can find sort of allusions and references to the face on Mars, literally by that term, way back in the 50s. And if we go back to the Jonathan Swift story, we find references to issues relative to Mars that shouldn't have been known prior to that time. So there's several examples of somebody or people having apparent knowledge of ancient Martian anomalies long before they were officially acknowledged, if you like. And if we, if we go back as far as we can with all this, which is with Jonathan Swift, you know, who wrote the famous uh, novel Gulliver's Travels, among, you know, various other titles. Well, that book was published in 1726. And in the story, um, Swift talks about how when Gulliver was on the island of Laputa, um, he discovers that the, the people of the island have found these two satellites, moons in other words, that, that um, rotate around Mars. And he talks about the distance, you know, from Mars, their size, their orbit, that kind of thing. Right. Now, that's interesting in itself because, um, you know, we, we know that Mars has two moons. They're called Phobos and Deimos. The problem is, Swift wrote his novel in 1726. The moons weren't discovered until 1877, which was more than 150 years after Gulliver's Travel, Travels was published. Um, now, in his novel, um, he talks about, um, for example, uh, with Deimos, he t excuse me, with Phobos, um, he talks about, sorry, I'm getting mixed up here. Sorry. <laughs> um, he, he talks about um, Deimos, for example, uh, being 8,000 miles from um, the planet Mars itself. The actual distance is 12,000 miles, you know, so he's actually not that far off. Um, you know, uh, he talks about, you know, other issues relative to orbit and, you know, the length of the days, which again are surprisingly close, you know, for the, the period of time in question. Right. And of course the big question on top of that is, well, where did he get his information from? Now, one of the people I interviewed for the book who actually does have a, uh, an intelligence background but wanted to sort of perhaps appropriately stay in the background to a degree, although I do <laughs> name him in the book, um, talked about how supposedly the National Security Agency had been able to determine that Swift had got at least some of his information from what's called the Voynich Manuscript. And the Voynich Manuscript is this sort of 200-plus page long document <clears throat> reputedly originated it in the early 15th century. And it takes its name from the fact that it was actually sort of discovered or uncovered by a, a book dealer named Wilfred Voynich, who was a, a Polish-Lithuanian person who he purchased it in 1912. Now, it's, it's, been, it's proved pretty much impossible to decipher it. You know, even the best code breakers of the National Security Agency have studied it. They can't break it. Right. And... To, show, to demonstrate, we can prove it has been studied by the NSA. You can actually go to their website and download some of their papers 
on the Voynich manuscript. Some of them are extremely lengthy, you know, how they tried to analyze it. So that's part of the story does stand up, uh, that they did have a deep interest in it. But as I said, I interviewed one person for the book who said, well, Swift did manage to decipher part of it, and it related to ancient secrets on Mars. Now, the fact is that although the Voynich manuscript contains a lot of sort of botanical and biological descriptions and pictures and drawings, etc., it also has entire sections on astronomical and astrological phenomena relative to the moon, the planets, the stars, and the sun. So, again, the, the fact that it has a, a relationship to astronomy and we can prove that the NSA did study it, you know, that kind of adds weight to this story that somebody found out within the NSA, you know, that Swift had uncovered some ancient secret that clearly, you know, been discovered thousands of years ago, but had later been lost. Now, on top of that, um, in the 1950s, the famous comic book artist Jack Kirby wrote um, a comic book series, the second part of which was called The Face on Mars. And it deals, uh, bear in mind this was like 58, 59. Right. And this actually deals with a U.S. space mission to Mars where when the astronauts land, they find this huge carved face on the surface of Mars, which when they go through the eye sockets, demonstrates as like, um, you know, like a hidden Martian city beneath it. Um, and Jack Kirby was someone who um, has sort of quasi connections to the CIA, where some of his artwork was used in a CIA um, sort of spy-op um, situation in, um, in 1979 to get some of the American hostages out of Iran at the, uh, the American embassy crisis. <laughs> they actually went undercover of being part of a film crew. And some of Jack Kirby's artistic renditions that were sort of handed over to try and convince the Iranians, you know, that... Um, this was part of, they were just part of a film crew. They didn't really work at the embassy. Right. His artwork was used to help get them out. And he was also consulted on, you know, potential ideas and drawings for jetpacks, you know, for CIA <laughs> agents. So it sounds bizarre, but, you know, so you have this comic book artist with links to the CIA who, 20 years before the face on Mars even surfaces through NASA, almost, writes a comic book story called The Face on Mars about this huge ancient carved face you know and we find other people in the sci-fi realm who had ties to officialdom as well writing novels all about pyramids on mars and of course in cydonia where you have the face on mars you also have these eerily pyramid type structures so you know i sort of speculate in the book is it possible that somebody in government uncovered some very ancient and archaic information about the face on Mars, and possibly even in the 50s and that era, there was a subtle attempt perhaps to acclimatize and inform people of this, you know, get them prepared for the idea that Mars isn't a dead world and that may have, may have harbored life and may still harbor life. But it seems that by the end of the 50s, early 60s, this entire program had come to an end and all this sort of talk of ancient mysteries conveniently surfacing today that eerily paralleled the past it all came to an end, and it was almost, as I see it, kind of like a battle within the Pentagon where some people wanted the truth to come out and others didn't, and those who didn't, I think, kind of won the day, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the passage of time, we can look back on that, and it's, it just, the, the idea that it's a coincidence just doesn't really stand up, in my mind, no, if it at was least. one thing, yeah, if it was one thing, you know, we could say, well, yeah, but when you've got Jonathan Swift, Jack Kirby, 
all these other um, stories and cartoon series and TV programs all talking about pyramids and strange faces on Mars, then, you know, when it gets to that point, and there's seven or eight different strands, all from different people, but all in one decade, you know, you have to begin to wonder that did somebody in the government sort of subtly approach people in the sci-fi world and say, hey, you know, can you put this out? We want to kind of spread it as like like a modern-day meme or something like that, you know? Right, exactly, exactly. And the idea, you know, I can see cities on Mars as a potential sort of idea that crops up, but but the whole idea of a carved face is so arcane and so, yeah, you know, it's so unique mm-hmm. that it's, I, like I said, I find it hard to believe that it just sort of sprung from the imagination. And then, and then it ended up turning out to be something that may be true. <laughs> well, that, that's the big thing. You know, it's even Jack Kirby's picture itself looks like the face on Mars, you know. That, that's the weird thing. So, I mean, if you Google that on Google Images, you'll see the, the, so the, the, the main picture where you have this sort of carved face, you know, just eerily staring out from Mars. You know, yeah, it's a cartoon picture, but when you see that it's actually titled the face on Mars as well, you know, it kind of... It's like what came first, you know, truth or fiction. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Now, you you sort of uh, ponder in the book, uh, you know, what it is that the government really knows about all this stuff. And, and you, you put forward the idea that maybe the government doesn't know as much as we think. And that kind of bears noting in the sense because it's interesting that you think – you get this idea, you know, you hear about, like, Area 51 and stuff like that, and you imagine that they have, like, the best and the brightest uh, people there mm-hmm. trying to solve these mysteries. But then as you as you read the book, you find out that a lot of times they're turning to these alternative figures like Jessup and mm-hmm. the ARC researcher and contactees mm-hmm. and stuff to get their research. Like, they co-opt the, the research of, of the New Age yeah. or the esoteric community which, you know, makes you almost think that they really, they're fumbling around in the dark trying to figure this out as much as we are. Well, I, I think actually several things, Tim. I think, you know, the, the older the mystery is, you know, the harder and harder it becomes to find the answers because it's so old. You know, it's kind of like investigating a murder case that occurred 24 hours ago versus 24 years ago, you right. know, it, forensics for the police. It's kind of a similar thing with the intelligence community and these ancient mysteries. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, when it comes to sort of the brightest and the best, I think one of the reasons why, you know, sort of the most high-profile figures in sort of the scientific communities don't get enlisted into these programs is because the government probably astutely realizes, you know, a lot of our big egos, because they do a lot of TV and stuff like that, and they'd want to blow the whistle. I'm the guy who's working on the crashed UFO, you know. Right. I'm the one who's working on the remains of Noah's Ark. Yeah, they want, like, credit and, for it, yeah. Yeah, they want credit. They want, you know, the next Nobel Prize or whatever. And so I think government agencies do really astutely realize there's no way we can get this guy, you know, who's on the History Channel every other week into the program because he's just going to shoot his <laughs> mouth off. And, and I think what they also do, so they get people who are very brilliant and clever, but a kind of alternative, a little bit wacky, even maybe like a mad scientist type, but equally, they're people who they can knock down and discredit if they want to, if these guys do go public. Um, you know, I mean, a perfect example, you know, somebody who is sort of a maverick scientist who people say, well, there's no way he'd be brought into a program like this. is somebody like Bob Lazar. I was just going to say Bob Lazar. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I actually don't write off Lazar. You know, people say, well, he didn't have all these official, you know, letters after his name or whatever. Well, the thing is... You know, sitting in a classroom for years doesn't always 
you know, give you the experience that being thrown in the deep end in the real world does. You know what I mean? It's like you can spend three years in a classroom being told how to swim, but the best thing to do is somebody keep pushing you in the back and knock you in the swimming pool, you know, and you'll start swimming, you know. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like that. And I think with um, with people like Lazar, you know, I don't write him off because there are enough strands to his story that suggest, you know, he was plugged into the official world at places like Los Alamos. Um, I think people are brought in who... They do good profiles on them. They know that they've got solid information. They can think outside the box. They're not restricted by, you know, just this sort of um, almost like indoctrinated college university mindset. Right, right. But also there are things in their background or whatever that can be used against them if they do decide to sort of, you know, run their mouth off or whatever. Hmm. And I think that's why in some of these stories, you know, I talk about when the... The military, for example, in the 50s and 60s was trying to find out the truth about, you know, were the pyramids built by levitation or anti-gravity? They approached people like Morris Jessup, you know, he was a doctor, um, he wrote UFO books, but he had traveled out to Central and South America investigating and studying these huge, you know, massive blocks of stone, etc., and pondering on how they were built and moved. Um, and they flew him out to D.C. and, you know, interviewed him and paid all his expenses, his hotel fee, you know, his flight, the lot. And, you know, they weren't approaching, you know, some guy in the Pentagon who may have been researching this or that. Or they may have done, but equally they were actually sort of making clandestine approach approaches to people in the UFO community who they felt might be willing to talk to them and open a few doors as well. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, sort of in, in that regard, uh, and, and you make note of it in the book, and it's something that I've kind of heard, I guess you could say, mentioned on the side, or I don't want to say whispered, but sort of uh, alluded to in, in the past from people who look at the UFO question, and that is um, just sort of the, uh, the power or the influence or the interest of the Navy, how the Navy is sort mm. of like this unspoken player in this whole milieu of of conspiracy and 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 research mm-hmm. of the unknown and and sort of an under underreported or underrated uh sort of factor in a lot of this so I, i'm sure you've kind of heard this idea bandied about yeah yeah i mean the, yeah and it's interesting because we do find strands of navy interest or deep navy interest in a lot of these mysteries i mean a classic one is the pyramids you know the, the thing i talk about in the book you know these the all cultures around the world that have you know massive um, you know, monuments like the pyramids of Egypt or the similar ones in South America, Central America, or a lot of the ancient Greek and Roman massive um, formations or Stonehenge in England, they all have rumors and legends that, you know, rather than being built by sort of rollers, ropes, pulleys, etc., that these pyramids were built, you know, by by some, you know, fantastic source that was able to elevate them in the air, you know, and basically what today we would call levitation or, you know, um, anti-gravity, that kind of thing. Now, what's interesting is that when you look at a lot of these old legends, this this comes to the Navy, which I'll get to, Mm -hmm. um, they all have very sort of intriguing stories attached to them. If you take them literally, you know, they make no sense. But, you know, they talk about how the stones were supposedly moved to uh, sort of magical tunes or to musical instruments or, you know, magical flutes and sort of, um, 
you know, paranormal um, songs and things like that. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a situation where music and sound seemed to play a role in the movement of these massive blocks and that the ancients seemed to know something about it. Now, today, that's actually very close to what's basically known as acoustic levitation, which is being researched more and more. And it, it's kind of, you know, a complex thing, but in simple terms, it's where you have sort of two opposing sound frequencies uh, with it what are called interfering sound waves, and they create what's called a resonance zone. And inside that resonance zone, if you sort of amplify and control that um, sound, those sound frequencies that are sort of opposing, you can actually lift objects within that resonance zone. And the military's had some success at doing that. Um, granted, they've only sort of managed to lift small objects so far, but, you know, using sound to lift stone blocks today, or small objects today, you know, you can easily understand how over sort of centuries of oral tradition passed down from family to family, say, you know, in the Middle East, how acoustic levitation could could be, you know, sort of mangled into magical music. You see right. what I mean? Exactly, yeah. Um, now, what's interesting is that at the forefront of all this research into, like, acoustic levitation in the 50s was not, as you might think, the Air Force, you know, because they were doing a lot of the UFO programs or whatever, like Blue Book and Grudge, or the CIA with the Robertson panel. It was actually the Navy. Um, and it was the Navy who took all this deep interest in, in Maurice Jessup, who, you know, was sort of a hands-on person who went out to South America and Central America. And, you know, I think with hindsight, probably one of the reasons why Jessup was singled out was simply because, you know, he'd, he'd actually done the research on site. You know, he wasn't just stuck in some library doing theoretical work. Mm -hmm. um, so he was flown out and basically grilled and interviewed or interrogated about his research. You know, why he felt that the pyramids were built by some sort of levitation. How did it work? You know, who was responsible for it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and what was interesting is that the people that were interviewing him were actually attached to like a, a special technology, special weapons division. And so, in other words, this is one of the things I think runs through the theme of these stories and the book, the idea that the the people at a, an official level were sort of digging into the past to try and weaponize the past in the present, if you right, like. You right. know, they were trying to understand these technologies to see if there was some sort of um, spin-off that could be utilized in today's world. And I think, you know, they clearly recognize that ancient man possessed technologies very different to ours, highly alternative, you know, that may not even sort of relied on nuts and bolts, mechanics and plugs and electricity or something, but a far more alternative technology, but, you know, that was equally, if not even more effective in certain ways, you know, particularly when it comes to moving these huge stones. I mean, like the one at Baalbek in the Middle East, that weighs in just around about a thousand tons. You know, it's <laughs> like, and we're supposed to, you know, we're told it, you know, it was moved by roll, or, you know, it could be moved by rollers or whatever, you know, it's just, it's just not feasible. Right, right. I think they just, like, say that and hope people will just, like, stop asking yeah. questions. That's <laughs> kind of... Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, the thing is, as well, a lot of these landscapes where these stones are moved, it's not like they're just flat, you right. know, which would make it even easier. You know, you're talking about up and, up and down hills, sand, 
you know, it's like you'd have a hard time getting your car out of the sand, you know, if it's sunk into the, you know, you forgot your car was left on the <laughs> beach or something, you know, never mind moving however many tons to build a pyramid, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, uh, we're, we're going to move on into uh, into final events in a moment, but let me just sort of plug this book again, The Pyramids in the Pentagon. There's other stuff we didn't even get into, folks. Uh, Vimanas, the Indian Vimanas and how they may have influenced uh, the atomic research of the uh, 40s and 50s and uh, crop circles and Stonehenge and a whole bunch of other stuff of the ancient mysterious nature, and I guess modern mysterious in a way with, uh, with crop circles. And Having read this book, I wanted to I wanted to make a suggestion slash request for you, uh, <laughs> since uh, I, I presume maybe you probably get a lot of uh, of book suggestion requests. But th- this one, maybe you've already kind of looked at this. Um, but I would like to see a pyramids and the Pentagon style book, but looking at Bigfoot and cryptids, sort of looking at maybe what the government interest in these mysterious beasts has been over the years. Is there much to well, that? But you mention that. I've actually got a huge amount of information on that. And for years, I've been sort of considering doing it. I've just never got round to it. Um, but I mean, I can. I mean, it's, you know, there's no secret to it. I mean, I've got, for example, freedom of information files on Navy sightings of sea serpents, um, British government files on big cat sightings, stuff about the State Department being interested in the Yeti. Um, Things from Puerto Rico about official interest in the Chupacabra. So uh, I guess I'll probably have to do it one day. It sounds like, you know, the idea is sort of uh, spinning around. Maybe that's sort of, uh, you know, somebody's way of telling me to, uh, oi, do it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I would love that. I would I would just be all over that. So uh, we're, like I said, we're going to move into a different book now. But this one here is The Pyramids and the Pentagon. That's from New Page Books, folks. Go out and pick that up. And uh, the, the other book I want to talk to you about, and it came out a couple of years ago, and I know you did a ton of interviews about it, but I finally got the chance to really sit down and dig into it, and that is uh, Final Events and the mm. Secret Government Group on Demonic UFOs and the Afterlife, and that's from Anomalous Books. And i got to tell you, Nick, this book not only was just terrifying in a lot of ways, but it really was one of the most fascinating and enjoyable UFO books mm. I've read in quite some time. It was really mind-blowing in a lot of ways and made me look at the whole phenomenon from a whole different angle. So, I mean, kudos to you for really putting this out there. Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, you know, it, it is one of the, it's probably the, without doubt the most controversial book I've written. And it is one that, you know, you used a word that a lot of people have used, which is sort of terrifying, uh, because it has a story that, you know, is pretty unsettling, if true. Um, you know, it's um, it's it's a book that, you know, I, I realized had to be sort of written in a certain way where I pointed out from the beginning that these are the conclusions, theories and ideas of a group in government and this is how they came to believe this and why they came to believe it rather than Nick Redfern saying, hey, the sky's about to fall in on us, this is what's going on. Do you right. know what I mean? Exactly. No, I have and, that. And that, that I have, was an important, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I have that in my notes here that, that right in the introduction you say, you know, this is what I've been told and what I've researched, not what I yeah. believe, which is, you know. Yeah, and I think that's an important point, you know. I mean, not that an author shouldn't stand. I stand by the story in the sense that it's. I wanted to write the book because it's fascinating to find that a group in government was getting funding to look at the ideas that UFOs had sort of occult, demonic origins. Does that mean they do? 
I don't know, but it, but the fact that a government group was looking into it is a story that's worth telling. So that's that's basically you know how I approach the story. But um, I mean the origins of the story. You know, people often ask me, you know, well, how, how is it you actually uncover the story? You know, don't you think it's suspicious that this sort of group approached you? But it didn't actually happen like that. What happened was that a few years ago, I think 2007 now. Um, I interviewed a guy named Ray Boucher. Ray's a former MUFON state director. He lives in Lincoln, Nebraska. And back in the 80s, he did a lot of research into the Rendlesham Forest case and even tried to get his senator or congressman involved. I forget which one it was now, but it was one of the two. Mm -hmm. And I was doing some research on Rendlesham and, you know, wanted to speak to Ray because he apparently had interviewed two um, Pentagon guys, two scientists who, or physicists who were... Um, apparently knew something about Rendlesham. And so, you know, Ray related this to me about how he'd met them at this hotel in Lincoln, Nebraska. But, and I thought that was going to be the end of the story, you know, that they were two physicists from the Pentagon who were sort of working on this Rendlesham program or knew something about it. But that was sort of just a minor part of the story. Ray said, well, there's actually a far bigger part to it. They were actually, he said, researching the overall UFO phenomenon and had come to the conclusion that, you know, all the sort of significant cases actually had nothing to do with alien visitation, but it would, they viewed it as like a satanic deception. You know, the idea that a lot of these incidents were sort of staged and possibly even like hologram based, you know, in, or, you know, it was instilled in the witness's mind that we were seeing aliens when in other words, it was like a demonic deception to allow sort of, you know, the Antichrist and Satan himself to get his grips into us, but under the guise of like a, an alien, I won't say invasion, but like an alien presence. Right, yeah. Um, and, you know, and then we'd fall for the ruse one day when the aliens come down and land, and it's actually, you know, paving the way for Armageddon or whatever. Right, right. And, you know, I was like, wow, so you, they're basically saying, you know, that UFOs are sort of like a, you know, a biblical prophecy, you know, a fulfilling of prophecies, you know, the final battle between good and evil. And it's been, it's going to be carried out under the guise of like a UFO invasion. And Ray said, yes, that's what they concluded. Um, so this, you know, was it became an even bigger story for me. And Ray said, you know, he told me the background, how he met these guys, you know, how they'd phone him, um, how the, you know, the, the meetings went ahead, etc. And there are a few things he asked me not to include, which I didn't, you know, and which I, which I haven't spoken about. And well, it was just some minor things, a few names and stuff that, you know, on a couple of occasions helped me sort of pursue the story further. Right. Um, and it opened a few doors where I actually was able to sort of put feelers out, which is what I often do. You know, if you get stuck, well, you just, you know, you have to pick the phone up and just, phone some public affairs office and say, hey, I've been, I'm a journalist, I've been given this story, will you comment on it? And often it's like, well, no comment, or we think it's this, or it's that, you know. Yeah. Uh, like with Roswell, when, you know, when the mogul balloon story came out, I phoned them up to get a quote on that, and they said, well, you know, our comment is it's a mogul balloon. <laughs> Sometimes that's where it ends. With this one, I actually got a phone call back. This was like under really weird sort of like deep throat type sources where it was, you know, we understand you spoken to Mr. Boucher and he's related ABC or whatever. What's your interest? Why are you interested in taking it further? And I just, you know, what did I have to lose by sort of playing it straight? I said, you know, it's a fascinating story. Um, from a journalistic perspective, Absolutely, yeah. 
group, group in Pentagon investigates demonic UFOs and gets funding from the government is a great story. And it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, then it was like, well, thank you very much, Mr. Redfern, for letting us know, you know. Um, and then down the line, I got sort of like a couple of other follow-ups, which allowed me to meet not many of the people from the group. It's not like, you know, I got some tour of some headquarters or anything like that. Nothing like that ever happened. It was like five people who, several of whom were retired and now, you know, elderly, um, and a couple who may have still been tied to it or may have sort of recently sort of left, so to speak, told me about this group, which went internally, they had a nickname for it, which was the Collins Elite. Um, but whether or not it had an official name, I think it probably did, but I think it's kind of like, you know, with the CIA, it's an official name, its nickname is the company. But there isn't a group within the CIA called the company, um, within the government called the company. It's called the Central Intelligence Agency. Right, right. But it's known as the company. And I think that could be the case with the Collins elite, that it's like an unofficial nickname that they use or have used to avoid revealing what is probably a still classified title. That wouldn't surprise me at all. But they, they basically sort of went right back to the early stages, like Kenneth Arnold, Roswell, right through the 50s, the contactees, the abduction movements, and came away believing that, you know, there were enough strands suggesting that it could all be traced back to demonic activity. And, you know, the extraterrestrial guys was the latest motif. You know, they believed that these things had sort of disguised themselves in the past as everything from, like, goblins, jinns, um, fairies, demons, you know, the, the whole sort of... Um, Elemental type things. Uh, yeah, you know, the whole th uh, paranormal creatures in the past, you know, that were sort of relevant to the people of that era, you know, that um, from, and their culture and their mythology, they would manifest according to those cultural beliefs. And because we believe in aliens, that's their latest incarnation, if you like. But they believe that this was the last one, you know, building up to this sort of final um, deception and attack if you like it's probably a good term to use and um so then it was a case of well why do you believe this and you know digging into the different cases or whatever yeah yeah and like i said uh i really enjoyed this book because to be quite honest and i mean the the demonic ufo theory has been out there all over the place yeah. for a very long time and quite frankly i've dismissed it out of hand uh up until now up until i read mm. this book and if somebody had asked me sort of like the top ten possibilities for UFOs, the, the demonic theory really would be like nine, ten or off the list for me. Mm. But having read this, I, I got to say it's really pushed it, – it's given a lot of credence to the possibility of it. Mm. I guess that's where the terrifying part comes in because yeah. well, it's, it's – Yeah, I mean, you know, I agree with you. I think, I think the big issue is how you, you interpret what a demon is. You know, the, 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 I think the, the one problem that I think or fault that the Collins elite had was not following the idea that it's not extraterrestrial, but it's something else. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think there is good evidence we're dealing with a phenomenon that may not be extraterrestrial. It may be from some other realm of existence, you know, or dimensional portal or whatever you want to term it. And you could argue that, you know, from the biblical sense that maybe heaven and hell are other dimensions, you know what I mean? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, right. like you're saying, uh, maybe they followed it to too literal uh, an interpretation yeah. of the of the Bible. Yeah, if they'd have said we don't think it's extraterrestrial, but we think it's from some other realm, 
that is to me is far more likely than saying we don't think it's extraterrestrial we literally think it's demons from hell that is the conclusion they came to and i think they took it i do think they took it too literally but i i do think they probably were right on target by saying it probably is something that coexists with us rather than traveling linear star system to linear star system or whatever you know it's um I, I, I truly do believe, you know, these, these phenomena are sort of coexist with us, you know, in other realms or window areas, as John Keel used to call them, you know, these portal points to other forms of existence. Um, but, you know, the, but in saying that, you know, there are classic examples where you can find in some of the sort of most formative and famous UFO cases links directly back to the certain same people over and over again. Um, one of the people that the Collins elite believed sort of kick-started all this um, was Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was a brilliant rocket scientist, sort of really got going in the 1930s. And he created the Aerojet Corporation, which actually made the solid rocket boosters um, for the space shuttle program, for NASA's space shuttle program. And he was one of the main brains behind the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California. Um, and every year on Halloween of all nights, the, the JPL actually celebrate Parsons' life and they reel out these mannequins of Parsons and all his early cohorts. And this was a man who, before every rocket mission, uh, would invoke the god Pan to try and have a successful flight. You know, and he was working with what would become eventually one day NASA. He had a top secret clearance with the Army, the Air Force, and um, various other missile-based, um, you know, groups doing missile-based research and rocketry research. Um, and he was basically an occultist. He was a disciple of none other than Alistair Crowley. And Parsons himself actually claimed to have engaged in various sort of incantations and rituals that he said opened a portal and doorway to let the flying saucers through in the modern era. Now, we can go back to Crowley, who he took all his inspiration from. In the uh, 1910s, um, Crowley engaged on this um, sort of long-term ritual called the Alamantra Working, which basically um, was where he invoked or conjured up this being known as Lamb, L-A-M, which I reproduced Crowley's picture of it in the book. Almost, apart from the huge eyes, but it still has penetrating eyes. It almost looks like the, the classic figure on the face of Whitley Strieber's communion. Yeah, it's like a great... You know, so we have Crowley in like 1918 conjuring up this creature or entity called Lamb from other, some other realm of existence. Then you have Parsons following him um, and claim to have opened the doorway to flying saucers. And this is in 1947 when he was engaged in a bunch of weird rituals. Now, what's interesting is that Parsons was big friends with a lot of the people in the 1940s um, science fiction movement. One of the people he was heavily um, linked up to was Ray Palmer, who was the editor of Amazing Stories. And Parsons actually met um, uh, Ray Palmer. Um, Ray Palmer was actually the publisher and co-author of Kenneth Arnold's The Coming of the Sources. So in other words... The man who was responsible for the coining the term flying saucers, pretty much, Kenneth Arnold, and his book, you know, could be traced back to uh, Ray Palmer, who co-wrote it, who was friends with um, with Jack Parsons, who took his inspiration from Aleister Crowley. You know, so you have like a, a lineage from Crowley right through to the man who defined what flying saucers were. You know, that that's just one of many sort of such weird, 
you know, examples that I talk about in the book. Right, right. Parsons is a, is a fascinating figure. A couple things stood out to me uh, from reading the book. I couldn't believe, I, I, obviously this is just a straight-up fact, but I didn't, didn't even know this, that uh, he was only 37 when he died. So, I mean, talk about, I feel oh, yeah, inadequate. <laughs> I feel inadequate seeing, like, these young people doing amazing things. I'm only 33. This guy opened a portal to... <laughs> He opened a portal to hell, and he, and he was practically yeah. my age probably when he did it. So uh, i got to get on the yeah, ball. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. Well, it was one of these situations, you know, where he was a very, again, a brilliant maverick alternative scientist. And this is a classic example of how the military doesn't mind working with somebody like that if they can get the job done. You know, he was, I mean, he, as I said, he was an occultist. He was a follower of uh, Crowley. Um, you know, he engaged actually in sort of rituals with none other than L. Ron Hubbard, you yeah. know, the brains behind Scientology. You know, he was he was friends with him for a while. They had a falling out, but, you know, at one point they were friends and close colleagues. Um, but as I said, you know, he invoked Pan before a flight, you know, a rocket flight, and the military just kind of rolled their eyes and said, well, if he gets the job done, it doesn't really matter. That was kind right. of the approach. And he had a top-secret clearance, literally, you know, top-secret with countless agencies. Um, and he unfortunately blew himself up in his lab in 52. There were a lot of reason, um, rumors. He was trying to conjure up a creature known as a, a homunculus. And in ancient folklore, this is like, a, it's actually described as a small little man endowed with magical powers. And if you see some of the drawings of the homunculus from centuries ago, it looks like a little gray. It's like a little doll-like bald-headed figure, you know, and the story <laughs> yeah. is he was trying to conjure one of these up when he blew himself up or possibly opened another portal and this sort of negative backlash came through. But, you know, this is 52. Also in 52, you know, he had the rise of people like George Adamski. That's when his Flying Sources of Landed book came out. Well, Adamski's co-author was a man named Desmond Leslie who came from a very famous and rich um an aristocratic Irish family. Um, and one of Desmond Leslie's relatives, Sir Shane Leslie, was a devotee of Alistair Crowley. You know, so you've got Crowley to Sir Desmond, to Sir Shane Leslie, to Desmond Leslie, who was George Adamski's co-author. So, you know, regardless of what people think about George Adamski, you know, he was without doubt one of the biggest names in 1950s ufology. And in the same way that Kenneth Arnold, you know, has sort of like a, a link back to Crowley via Ray Palmer. So Adamski has a link back to Crowley through his co-author, Desmond Leslie. You know? right, so right. there's a lot of things through the 50s that, you know, never mind just the 40s. Exactly, yeah. It's like these, there's these occult connections in the early mm. days of the UFO phenomenon that, that you're sort of, that, you know, are brought to light here. That, that makes, again, it makes you sort of question, you know, this, this, uh, like you said earlier, for lack of a better term, a uh, demonic aspect of it all. I thought it was interesting yeah. in the book, and I'm wondering if this ever sort of came up in your conversations with these these people you talk to. It's obviously very dark and everything, and, and mm. e if they're interpreting it literally in the sense that they think these are demons from Satan's, uh, you know, mm. uh, at the behest of Satan, where are all the good angels? Like, <laughs> you know, where are, where are all the good things that should be happening? It, it mm. seems like you know, I kind of was wondering that along the way. It's it, it's sort of waiting well, for the final I mean, battle, yeah. but you know, it's it's all. You're right. I mean, that that is a good point. You know, I mean, again, I mean, I, I have no answer for that. You know, I, all I can you know, he sort of talk about is what 
the group came to conclude. And, right. and as I point out, I think their big flaw is not just interpreting things literally, but not, stay, not straying away from that point of view. You know, they anything that was to do with portals and doorways, they didn't perceive it as being interdimensional or the summer realm or the some of the realm that, you know, kind of coexisted with us that could be explained scientifically. They explained it supernaturally as a portal to literally like the fiery pit and this guy, you know, with a forked tail and a you know, a pitchfork or whatever. And I think had they sort of thought outside of that specifically just religious approach and said, well, hey, you know, maybe whatever the occult is, it can actually open portals and doorways. You know, I mean, there actually is good evidence that, you know, sort of meditating or altered states and things like this can open portals. You know, things like DMT, uh, DMT. you know, for example, a lot of research has been done where that seems to invoke abduction-type experiences or close encounters where your mind literally hooks into some other realm of existence. Um, and had they gone down that path as well and just been open-minded more, I think they would have achieved a great deal more than just having this blinkered approach that, no, this is coming from the literal hell and nowhere else, you know. Right, exactly. It's like the, these dark entities, they may have no religious affiliation. They may, you know, they may come through this portal and just be like, you know, we just hate well, humans. Yeah, I mean, That's all we Yeah, just I mean, we humans. can never deny the possibility, you know, that, the, the stories of heaven and hell are distorted versions of the ancients actually fully being aware that there were other realms of existence and that there were negative entities in some of them and that if you knew the right way, you could invoke them. I actually do believe that's all possible, but that doesn't mean it's a literal place where one's all fluffy and cloudy and harps and the other one's people being pushed into some fiery pit. Right. You know, that's a, such a simplistic interpretation of what could be multi-dimensions, you know. Exactly, yeah. Do you think people will vote for me? Heck yes, I'd vote for you. Like, what are my skills? Well, you have a sweet bike, and you're really good at hooking up with chicks. Plus, you're like the only guy at school who has a mustache. That's true. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. If you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams will come true. Now, I, th I thought it was interesting. I'm going to kiss your ass here a little bit again because, uh, you know, this, the, the whole story of Roswell has been just beaten to death so many times. And you here, Nick Redfern, you've introduced two new theories to, uh, to, to the Roswell crash in, in the last decade. You've got the bodies and body snackers mm -hmm. in the desert theory. And then in this book, there's a whole nother, uh, idea yeah. that, you know, that this is alchemical, uh, material that is sprinkled uh, in, in the New Mexico desert by uh, the nefarious dark forces, if you will. So, I, I mean, I'm not, there's no real question behind this, in a sense, just sort of a celebration that you're adding some new stuff <laughs> to the Roswell story. Well, yeah, I mean, Roswell, you know, the, the biggest problem about Roswell isn't, you know, the fact that we have one or two theories suggesting something strange happened. It's that we have so many theories, you know, and it's kind of like when it gets to saturation point, then it becomes difficult to know what the truth is. And, you know, you, you mentioned I wrote a book called Body Snatchers in the Desert back in 2005, which was basically, you know, a study of the idea of was Roswell a military experiment, you know, that went wrong and it was covered up because it was sort of a dubious sort of high-altitude experiment using people. Um, but the, the Collins elite had a... Uh, what I would actually say is like a unique approach, which I truthfully never, ever 
contemplated or considered. They viewed Roswell as like a Trojan horse. They don't believe anything literally crashed in the form of an accident at Roswell. They believe it, believed it was like a, a deliberately staged event. And they, they believe that basically, as the, the literal interpretation, that demons don't have a literal form. You know, that, a lot of people are surprised about this, but, you know, the official story, or not the official story, the, you know, the religious view is that, you know, demons are without form. Although, you know, some people believe they can take on sort of a, a physical appearance, if you like. Right. But they, the Collins elite came to believe that these entities were able to sort of alchemically almost manipulate matter. So, you know, they would pluck matter and created the so-called memory metal found at Roswell. And as you point out, like kind of literally sprinkled it onto the New Mexico desert floor to create the image in our minds of a crash. And they believe that they did the same thing with the with the bodies. They believe that the bodies never lived. You know, they were almost like, they were dummies, but not crash test dummies. They were like dummies made of, you know, what we would call flesh, blood, bone, DNA. But again, which have been sort of alchemically manipulated. Kind of like, you know, if you, you take the imagery of like a jackalope. You know, a jackalope's this sort of created creature, you know, you can buy in stores that never really lived, but it's made up of bone, blood, DNA, etc. Right. You know, but it's taken from different animals. They kind of believe that. The idea that, um, you know, that these were constructed life forms designed to lull the U.S. military into a false sense of security that vulnerable aliens had crashed, you know, like a typical Trojan horse scenario. Now, as I said, what's interesting is that Jack Parsons tried to himself conjure up one of these creatures known as a homunculus, homunculus, where it's basically like a manufactured life form that, you know, you instill life in it, but it never really lived, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that one of um, Parsons' uh, colleagues, who was almost a father figure to him, uh, named Theodore von Kármán, who also, in a roundabout way, was linked with manufactured life forms. Von Kármán had a relative hundreds of years ago who was obsessed with golems. You know, the golem in you know Jewish traditions again is like this manufactured creature. And the fact that von Karman, you know, believed in the Golem story, you know, is an ad adherent of the story. And he was working with Jack Parsons, who was trying to conjure up or create manufactured life forms. And then we find the Collins elite thinks that the, you know, the bodies um, found at Roswell were manufactured life forms. You know, we see another strand here as well. And what's even more interesting is that a guy who was sort of not a, so much an ally, but a, a semi-friendly rival of Parsons uh, was Robert Goddard, who moved his rocket um, programs to Roswell. And Jack Parsons in the late 30s, early 40s actually went out to Roswell to discuss rocketry um, with Goddard. So, you know, we have Parsons actually out at Roswell, which, you know, again, takes the story to an even deeper level, if you like. Hmm. Now, in the, you know, I guess you could say in the mythos of the history of ufology, um, hmm. where do you think, and maybe this, again, maybe this came up with the, with the guys from the Collins elite, maybe it didn't, um, but I'm sure uh, you've thought about this, I hope, uh, you know, where, I guess, what's the situation, what's the relationship between the Collins elite and whatever 
faction would be the MJ-12, whether we, you know, obviously mm. may not go by that name, but there yeah. seems to be an idea that there's a government, you know, yeah. group looking at UFOs. What was the what was the relationship between those two potential groups? Well, yeah, actually, that's a, a very good question, Tim, because it's, it's important we understand sort of the nature of this group. You know, I, I think what I got pretty quickly, and I, and I think he's absolutely correct, is that this isn't some sort of all-powerful CIA-type agency, or even something like MJ-12. You know, the Collins elite is not the group that is sitting on the big secret. I mean, they talk about Roswell. You know, a lot of the material, I, I reproduce sort of a, the text of a, an intriguing, but you know, a document that isn't ultimately verifiable yet. It didn't service through the Freedom of Information Act. A lot of the material they talk about in there you know, they re their reference section is open source literature, like the Moore Burlitz book on Ro the Roswell incident, you know, yeah. or Kevin Randall's books, etc. Um, the Collins elite, to me, don't come across like, you know, the guys who are sitting on the big secret. They were like one or two levels down. Mm -hmm. You know, they were sort of a think tank group that, okay, there may be somebody who's really sitting on a big secret, but we want to get other people's inputs as well in case you know, the all-powerful group have actually got it wrong. And so the Collins elite seemed to be like a second or third tier type think tank that had access to some insider secrets, that's clear, you know, because they they clearly reference a number of reports on Roswell that if they are real, remain classified and go far beyond balloons and crash test dummies. But they don't seem to have been cleared to have actually seen the bodies or handled the wreckage, you know, they got information that they were cleared to access to a certain degree. Um, and they do come across more like a, a funded think tank rather than the guys pulling the strings, you know. And right. I, think, I think that's an important factor that, you know, that's how government agencies work. You know, it, all the work isn't done by, you know, the top dog, so to speak. You know, the top dog uh, sort of assigns programs and projects to sort of sub-projects and they aren't always clear to know why they're collecting the information they're being asked to collect or ordered to collect. And I think that applies here, that the Collins elite knew a great deal that we don't know. There's no doubt about that. And they uncovered a lot of data that, you know, we don't have access to. But it was passed, I think, further up the chain. And they may not even have known what was done with it, you know. Right, right. I think you, in the part you're talking about that references the uh, the open source text, I think even in that it's a it's a piece written by someone in the Collins elite, and it, it mm. sounds like they're sort of bemoaning some group above them that has like an indecipherable oh, yeah. like three four letter uh, four letter yeah. name that we you know is, is just like four letters. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I actually talk about this a couple of times when you know they're interested in abductions. They felt abductions were like a holographic imagery instilled in the mind of the witness to try and convince you know, that they'd been abducted by aliens, but it was like a blanketing of the population, of almost like a matrix-type insertion into people's minds with no physical reality to it. And they were bemoaning the fact that, well, we need more funding to investigate this. You know, if they were the top dog, they wouldn't be complaining that, you know, our abduction project needs to be revamped and kick-started, you know. So, again, we see, I see several strands like that throughout the book. You know, it's not all the time, but consistently from 52 when they sort of pretty much really kicked off formally through the 80s when the abduction project kicked off big time or to a larger degree and then with Roswell, 
there are inferences in all these different aspects where they were like, we need more money, we need more funding, why is this group, you know, getting access to this and we're not, you know. And to me that makes that makes the story more credible. You know, if they were claiming to know the answers to everything and being the top thing, I'd be like, well, this is just too smoothly presented to me, you know what I mean? Yeah. But having a think tank group that actually was complaining about funding and budgets and believing there was people above them who knew more, that is the way government works. And that made it, you know, come across to me as, as far more believable and acceptable, you know, that it wasn't some sort of disinformation ploy or whatever. Yeah. And, 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 Again, to sort of like strip the the religious connotations away from from the story in a sense, but also to look at what the story, the the root of the story, if you will. I thought it was really troubling and interesting that this whole thing sort of hinges on the harvesting of souls, because uh, and even you point out in the book that it's like impossible to really get to the bottom of what the soul is. It's like this intangible thing that that great yeah. minds throughout history have tried to to, uh, you know, I don't know, elucidate more, but, and I've heard this theory endlessly, really, about the, the harvesting of souls, so it, it sounds like th- there must be something, I don't know, not necessarily to the idea of the harvesting of souls, but there's got to be something going on that is is at the root of this, you know what I mean? It, it feels, yeah, I mean, it, it resonates. Yeah, I mean, this actually sort of eerily, in a way, parallels you know, the Matrix saga, you know, in the movies, you know, the the real world that we think we all live in, you know, when we get stuck in traffic or watch TV, you know, it's like a an image, you know, it's a dream, but a highly sophisticated dream. And really, we're all millions of us or billions of us, you know, we're all in these pods making electricity for the machines in the Matrix. You know, that's the basic theme of of the movie or the movies. And the Collins elite had a similar scenario they believe that the reason why you know these entities have never sort of landed on the white house lawn or destroyed us is because they don't want to do either they want to maintain us the collins elite kind of viewed us as like a herd you know like the cattle um and the idea is that you know the cattle blissfully eat and munch the grass in the field you know and the farmer feeds them and as far as they're concerned he's the their friend, you know. Yeah. He brings food and water every day and gives them somewhere to sleep at night. But then the day comes, you know, when they're taken away and they're slaughtered for food, you know, and the, then their eyes are open as to what their fate is. Well, the Collins elite believed that the earth was like that. It was like a huge farm. We were the herd. And that when we get taken, you know, at the point of death, what happens, they believe, was that these entities... Now, this isn't, this isn't in the Bible, I should stress this. The, the Collins elite actually sort of mutated some of the old beliefs and came up with their own ideas based on the stuff that they said they uncovered as time went on. Mm-hmm. They believe that these entities, were, you know, that some people would call demons, literally live on soul energy. So, in other words, they want to maintain the human race until a point where the, the biblical prophecies have to be fulfilled regardless. But they viewed it that... You know, they take energy as a food source from the human soul. And so, in other words, we're harvested, you know. When we die, it's the equivalent to the cows being taken to right. the, the slaughterhouse, you know. We're harvested for our souls. And it was described as like a, you know, almost like a a, like a, a scientific situation, you know, where these the, the sort of entire soul factories almost, you know, in some other realm of existence. 
Um, and that is probably the one thing, you know, more than anything else in the book, really does sort of disturb people, you know, the idea that the planet is like a farm, you know. Um, but what's interesting is that there probably aren't hardly any abduction researchers who haven't been told this by at least more than a handful of abductees, you know. John Mack talked about it a lot. Whitley Strieber did. You know, Whitley, Whitley Strieber said that some of the entities or one of the entities he conversed with or was confronted with was said was told, you know, we recycle souls. You know, that's... And um, Bob Lazar said, you know, the, the files he supposedly read at Area 51 described us as containers. You know, the idea that we were just the container for something more important. You know, and if that is true, it's kind of like a... It'd be kind of really ironic, you know, if <laughs> if we're just some huge farm, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, yeah. You wonder if it's like, you know, if the soul's like a floppy disk and it just goes through the human body and you die and whatever these things are, take it and eat all the memory. Yeah. Maybe that's what powers them, and then they just stick a fresh, you know, they yeah. take all the stuff off oh. the disk, put it back in the next person, and. You know, it's spooky. Yeah. It's just the whole well, thing. Well, it is. I mean, it's. I mean, I'd be the first to admit. You know, there's. They admitted this was a theory, but you know, it was a theory born out of the fact that a considerable number of people in the abduction field, regardless of how much they promote it or not, many of them do have those type of stories. You know, I. I, I mean, I, I cite pretty much all the famous, well-known abductees in that particular chapter of the book, where they'd all, you know, pretty much got stories along those lines. Whether they accepted them or not, it's a different thing, but abductees were telling them that, you know, they felt these things were sort of literally stealing their soul, you know, like a psychic vampire or something like that. Yeah, it's spooky. You know, what I really found interesting about this book, too, I, like I said, I really couldn't put it down and, and was just fascinated by it because it has so many twists on the classic UFO milieu. There's, like, I, the Roswell thing we talked about, and then and then later on in the book... You know, this thing with my labs, which is uh, military abductions, which is a whole new branch, uh, you could say, of abduction research that, that posits the idea that the government is following up uh, alien abductions with their own abductions to, I guess, as I said to Melinda Leslie a long time ago, reverse engineer these abductees to figure out what they saw and everything. And then as you put forward in the book, the Collins Elite looked at my labs and couldn't come up with anything to prove them within the secret confines of the government, if you will, and then concluded that the MyLabs are also part of this grand illusion, which is yeah, just that they, insane. Yeah, that they kind of <laughs> concluded that the whole, you know, everything from MyLabs to the black helicopters and abductions, that it was all part of like a, you know, a, a massively sophisticated sort of simulation, you know, projected into the mind of the person while they slept or whatever, you know, and, and that it was being deliberately done all across the nation or the world to sort of promote and prompt, you know, the, the meme idea of what alien abductions are supposed to be, you know, get people... So everybody, and, and arguably, you know, whether people believe it or not, everybody knows what the term alien abduction means today. That's a fact, you know, people do. You could ask them in England, France, Germany... Australia, America, Canada, what's an alien abduction scenario? And they would tell you, you know, so arguably that meme has spread. But, yeah, it was weird that the Collins elite basically said, well, you know, we've got this abduction group, and all we've got is, like, telephones, resources to review books and, you know, a few documents or whatever, yet there's this other group got access to helicopters and underground bases in fortified desert locations, and 
the government says, well, no, we're not doing that. And when the Collins elite themselves went looking, they couldn't find anything. And then it, they came to this idea, well, maybe this is all part of the simulation as well, you know. And there is no my lab, you know. It's all part of this entire ruse. Yeah, it's it, like I said, so many twists on on the UFO uh, story that as you're going along, it's it, it may it makes you take a whole another look at this entire phenomenon, which is well. The interesting thing is as well that you know, even if we take you know, people say, well, how do we know this isn't disinformation? One of the reasons why I think it isn't is because we can actually find evidence of where stories like this have surfaced before, but you can take them sort of with new light and new appreciation with the Collins elite angle. For example. In 1973, there was a, a very famous UFO encounter at a place called Mansfield, Ohio, involving a helicopter crew um, piloted by a captain named Captain Coyne, where they had an extremely close encounter with a, with a UFO as they were um, in the skies, and it affected the, the helicopter's uh, engines, all sorts of stuff. A uh, very famous case. And um, in the aftermath, the crew reported how, you know, they get these weird phone calls from the Pentagon asking if they'd had any dreams, weird dreams about leaving their body or dying and seeing their, feeling their soul leaving the body. You know, this is the sort of stuff that the Collins elite were heavily influenced by and interested in. And these guys went on record years ago saying, you know, we got these weird phone calls of people asking us about soul separation in relation to this UFO event. Which sounds, although they weren't told, you know, they were from the Collins League, but that sounds exactly like what that group would have been doing then. So. Yeah, yeah, very weird. Now, it, it, it's, I'm dying to know, because the book came out a couple of years ago, or maybe about 18 months ago or so, have you uh, learned anything more? Have more people come forward? I mean, is there any sort of general update on this Collins Elite research? Because, um, you know, up yeah. until this book came out, you know, I talk about you adding two new theories to the Roswell crash. I mean, you've added a whole new batch of characters in a sense. You've sort of added a new MJ-12, as we already kind of talked about. So, I mean, this thing could go on forever looking at, at this group. Yeah, I mean, certain things have come forward. I mean, for example, a few more corroborative stories like the Captain Coin one, you know, where things I hadn't thought about, you know, where somebody pointed out um, – you know, well, this sounds like these guys as well, that kind of thing. I also got hold of some documents talking about how the CIA back in the 50s were heavily researching Ouija boards. Um, one of the people the Collins elite was interested in was a contactee named uh, George Hunt Williamson who claimed to have contacted aliens by Ouija boards. Now we're finding that very same area the CIA was interested in Ouija boards. You know, I've got a few things like that. Um, and I've got a few more revelations, no pun intended, <laughs> from uh, from uh, the people I previously interviewed. But unfortunately, now whether this, you know, should be viewed suspiciously as, you know, sort of a manipulation or not, I don't know, but none of, no more members of the group have come forward. Now, you know, whether that means this was like a testing of the waters and there's been a decision taken not to take it any further or, you know, for all I know, maybe they've gone on to somebody else, you know, to, and next week, you know, there's going to be a new book that nobody's been told about because it's been kept under wraps. Do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. somebody else has spoken to members yeah. of the group. You know, th I think that's a possibility. So, you know, the, the very fact that because this story, I got it from Ray Boucher and it wasn't like one that was spoon fed to me. It was one I sort of stumbled on 
and then somebody said, well, okay, you know, we'll, we'll share a few things. It wasn't like, you know, I discovered all this stuff hidden away in some archive. So I think in many respects, you know, the good argument can be made they were the ones pulling the strings, which I have to admit is true. You know, this wasn't a case of me, unfortunately, being in control of the situation. It was the exact opposite. You know, and that relates to how the data was given to me as well. So I think that possibly explains, you know, why I've made some headway in some areas. In other ways, unfortunately, I haven't. You know, I wish I had. I could say, I'm in the position to write final events too, but I'm not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could. You know, I wish I could add another 100 pages to the, the the Parsons angle or to the Adamski angle or to the Soul angle, but I can't. I've got snippets. But it wouldn't surprise me because, you know, they spoke to Ray Boucher in 91, they corresponded, or elements of them corresponded with Linda Howe in, 90, I think it was 94 or 93. And then I had this sort of contact, um, 99, uh, excuse me, 2009, 2010, that era, uh, 2008. And so for that reason, I think, you know, there could well be other people who are going to take it to another level. Yeah. You know, maybe a lot of this is tested in the water to see what the response is, you know, and, uh, so there's, but there's been snippets, but nothing where I wish I could say there's been some huge thing that there hasn't, unfortunately. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was just, well, I guess to piggyback on that, I mean, the UFO field is notorious for its tunnel vision on, on the nature of UFOs. So what's, what was the reaction to, to this <laughs> book? Because I can imagine a lot of people were like, what, what are you doing? You know, all this other stuff. Yeah. Well, one of the problems, that a lot of people made the mistake, and it was primarily those who hadn't read the book, they were assuming that I'd had some sort of overnight, you know... Conversion. Conversion, <laughs> that's a good word, yeah. Literally, and I was promoting this theory. That that was the first mistake a lot of people made. Now, what I was doing, I was promoting the story of the group, because it is a fascinating story. You know, I'm not just saying that as the author. You know, a think tank paid and funded to look at the idea that the UFO phenomenon has demonic origins is a story worth telling. Absolutely. You know, so that's what I did. So a lot of people made the mistake of criticizing it because they were saying, well, how can you say this when we don't know that there's no evidence for it? And I said, well, hang on, I'm, I'm not saying it. I'm relating how this group came to believe that. Um, and the other response was, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, this is fear-mongering, which to an extent, you know, I'm not fear-mongering, but I'm relating stuff that, I'll be the first to admit, can instill fear in people. Yeah. You know, but but just because it can instill fear and it's controversial and can worry a lot of people, that's, for me, not enough reason to bury it. Exactly. You yeah. know? Yeah. It's like, well, okay, if it's true or not, but if it is true, well, the, it's better that we know. You know, maybe we can do something about it. Right. You know, regardless of whether these things are literally demonic or not, if there is some connection with the human soul and it becomes an energy source, maybe there is a way to defeat it. And if there is, we should know. So there were people who actually criticized me. You know, ironic, these are people in the UFO field who believe the government's hiding the truth. And they're saying to me, well, Nick, it might have been better if you've hidden the story. You know, what? That's, that's one of ridiculous. the biggest ironies. That's one of the biggest ironies of all that there were people who are saying you should have acted with self censorship because it's too reckless and dangerous a story to tell, whether true or not. And I was like, well, basically, you know, off. <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
And uh, I'm not sure I can say that on air, so I left it out, but we all know what the word was. Exactly, um, yeah. You can say it, and, but <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, all right. Though I told you, fuck off. You know, because <laughs> it was like um, the last thing the UFO community should be doing with any theory is engaging in self-censorship. You know, that's just ridiculous. Um, so there were things like that. Um, and a lot of people misunderstood, you know, they were suspicious even sometimes. Well, how did you get the story? Why was it given to you? Not realizing that it wasn't given to me. Had I not approached Ray Boucher about the Rendlesham thing, and then Ray said, well, yeah, these guys did work on Rendlesham, but they were also involved in this other stuff. You know, had it not been for the Rendlesham angle, I would be none the wiser than anybody else. Mm. You know, it was just pure luck and chance that Ray Boucher opened the door, so to speak, that allowed me to dig into this further so you know it was a case of just being in the right place at the right time and people loudly wanted to know you know oh well how did nick know this you know this has got to be disinformation because they they approached him to get this story out knowing he's an author no, nobody approached me i went looking you know which is a very different angle exactly you know? I, yeah. I only went i only went looking thanks to ray being willing to speak to me so well, it's, it's so things like that happen. But it, I mean, it gives you a good appreciation of what, in alternative circumstances, what what you can actually find occur in the UFO field, which you never really anticipated would have happened. You know. Yeah, and it's ironic because, uh, again, well, no pun intended. Uh, the government is demonized by the people in the UFO community, <laughs> but. <laughs> but <laughs> I know, waka waka. But but then you look at the events of this story. And it's like the government has more of an open mind about the UFO phenomenon than the UFO <laughs> research community does because well, they're looking yeah. at the demon thing with with an open mind. Well, this is, you know this is one of the biggest ironies. A lot of people forget that government agencies or the government as a generic body, if you like, mm -hmm. has actually addressed numerous theories far more than the UFO community for the most part. Either entertains the idea. You know, on the one hand, you have the ETH believers. On the other hand, you have the debunkers who say it's weather balloons or whatever. But the government over the years has looked at the UFO angle, the secret weapon angle, that's reflected in early FBI files, the Russian angle, that was first addressed, you know, by a, a panicked military in the summer of 47. The, the um, Department of Commerce's Weather Bureau looked at ball lightning in the uh, 40s. The British Ministry of Defence looked at plasmas, you know, with this Condyne project. Um, the, you know, the, the extraterrestrial angle has been addressed. The Robertson panel of the CIA was less interested in what UFOs were and more how the Russians might exploit it for propaganda purposes. You know, that's like seven or eight theories, many of a very intriguing and alternative nature, addressed by government, you know, that is even that's sort of more refreshing than an open-minded than those of us in the UFO field, right. you know. But what this points out to, I think, is that the government, despite what we think, may actually not really have all the answers. You know, if the, if the, there was a unified single UFO program that had all the answers, there wouldn't be government agencies looking at weather balloons. Excuse me, at ball lightning. Um, you know, propaganda programs, um, mogul balloons, you know, aliens, plasmas, um, et cetera, et cetera. There would be one program looking at one angle, you know. So yeah. this suggests that this gives us some sort of light at the end of the tunnel that maybe this sort of demonic theory isn't the doomsday scenario that many people might think it is because that is just one of at least ten, I can think of, theories that have been addressed by various think tanks within government, you know. So... 
I think that gives us some hope, you know. And I, as I said, I think the big thing, the big flaw was interpreting potential other realms where these things could come from as a literal demonic hell, which does frighten a lot of people, you know, in a country like America, which is heavily Christian-based, you know. it's um, it, it does frighten people, but, you know, should we be frightened of that? Well, yeah. Should we be frightened if it's just another realm that can be explained scientifically? Then maybe not, you know. So. Right, right. And, and, and to sort of continue that theme of uh, the scariness of it all is that you know, towards the end of the book, it's discussed how, you know, the Collins elite and elements within the government sort of come up with this idea to sort of lock down the United States and, 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 um. Yeah, like a feudal religious. Right, right. Testament. Yeah, the basic scenario they had of this was the idea of, they, I don't know how they came to this conclusion. I never really got an answer to it, but they believed that belief in, you know, uh, God, so to speak, that, that belief could actually hold these entities at bay. You know, not laser guns or weaponry, but belief or denial of them. Like, denial of them can hold them at bay. It's probably the easiest way to explain it. And they believe that the only way that the entire nation could be galvanized to have the, the strength of belief that was needed would be like a second coming. And if it didn't happen, it would have to be staged to convince, you know, everybody or 99% of the population that that's what it was. And then if belief was so deep, it would stand a chance of keeping these things at bay for however long was needed. Right. Now, people say, you know, that's just impossible. There's no way the government could stage a second coming. You know, but, I mean, one of the things that I pointed out that's actually surfaced since publication of the book are documents talking about how in the early 60s, the CIA actually planned for this over Cuba. They had a plan. I wish I had this in time to put it in the book, but they had a plan. And I, I have the documents on this now. The I think it might be in the. Uh, I think it might be mentioned in the um, in the in the in the the, pen, the pyramids in the Pentagon. Yeah, it is. Actually, yeah. yeah, I put it in the pyramids in the Pentagon. The the scenario was that you know that back in the early sixties they wanted to get rid of Fidel Castro from Cuba by any means possible. One of the plans the military had was to fake a, a second coming. The idea was to bring boats covertly under cover of night into the harbors off the coast of Cuba and project images of Jesus onto low-flying clouds, uh, low-level clouds, and then have aircraft flying through the clouds with their engines muffled as much as possible and guys broadcasting messages saying, this is Jesus, in simple terms saying, this is Jesus, you know, I'm on the side of the United States, renounce your, you know, your allegiance to Fidel Castro and you won't burn in hell. That was basically the scenario. Now, of course, it was never undertaken because it was perceived as being just too difficult. You know, you've got to get the boats in without being blown up. You've got to have the low cloud cover. You've got to hope that the ruse doesn't go wrong. And it was just seen as just too problematic and one of these wacky projects. But it was talked about, planned, and discussed in a roundtable setting, which is exactly what the Collins elite said happened just a few years ago. But today, they're not talking about anything like that. They're talking about, like, sophisticated holograms, you know, to confuse whole masses of people, which is a very different scenario, you know, bringing boats in and kind of cinematic projection equipment and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and the idea was, you know, to sort of instill religion more and more in the military and create it, you know, sort of almost like an Old Testament 
fear-based religion, you know, and I have to be the first to admit religion is playing a bigger and bigger role in the military and government, you know, um, and there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, you know, when religion begins to play more of a role in government, it becomes to play more of a dominating role, you know, and you could argue that some of the stuff that the people in the Collins elite said five years ago we're actually now seeing, you know, sort of, it's like, I mean, no, nobody running for president in the U.S. today can do so without talking li- loudly about their, their religious beliefs. Yeah. You know, I don't care what they believe at, for, at a religious level, but the very fact that they have to promote it demonstrates how significant a role and a growing role it's playing where any candidate has, a candidate has to say, this is what I believe. You know, and um, and and it's going on more and more. You know, um, yeah, you well, find some horrible indoctrination programs and intimidation in the military of people who aren't ad- adhering to the idea that you know the war in the Middle East is basically you know the fight against good and evil. It's not. It's a war. It's not a battle, a supernatural battle between good and evil at all. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the scary part that sort of come out of this post 9/11 yeah. world it's like yeah. I, I mean i'm no student of us history but i can i can't recall any sort of war that was so heavily based along religious lines that, that than yeah. this than this whole thing that's yeah, going on war. now it's a war you know yeah. it's not it's not a fight for the the souls of the planet you know there are there are people who believe that but th- that was never broadcast in the second world war the first world war the vietnam war you know, it's being done now, and that, interesting enough, ties in with a lot of what the Collins elite was saying, that, you know, it's it's to instill fear, and, the, you know, the ultimate scenario that was discussed was like a lockdown of the nation to create like a feudal, dumbed-down society living in fear, but live, but still living. That was the idea, the, you know, the scenario was, well, you know, if, if it means the nation isn't what it was in terms of freedom, at least people are still alive. You know, that was, it was sort of like the most, the worst well-meaning scenario you could imagine. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's like, well, we're going to survive, but in this horrible, in this horrible position. It's, and that, and, you know, yeah. the whole book yeah. is full of <laughs> scary Well, the, yeah, scenarios. I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, you, you could also have some degree, a small amount of um, sympathy. You know, if it is true in to any degree, you know, have some sympathy for the fact that, well, how can we tell people this, that the Earth's a farm? Right. You know, and our souls are basically the food, you know, and the, the, the earth is like the field and the barn, you know. Um, and the, the soul is like the, the steak, you know, well done or rare. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Which I hope isn't true, but. Yeah, you know, I mean, who, it would who be. Who can say, you know? Yeah, it's, it's scary stuff. Now, the, what about, obviously, this Collins Elite, they're like a think tank within the U.S. and, We've long heard sort of ideas that, you know, really, even though there was this Cold War, that really the Russians and the Americans were kind of on board with this UFO thing, and they knew what was going on. This whole idea, I guess you could say, that, that you know, the the big countries of, of the planet Earth are, are in the know on the UFO thing. Did they ever sort of give any indication as to what the Russians or the British uh, intelligence agencies well, and governments might know about the demonic entity theory, if you will? Well, yeah, I mean, what I'd say first, Tim, is that, you know, there's no doubt. You know, I don't believe all these theories that, you know, that the Cold War was a charade and that we were friends with the Russian secret all along. But what I do believe, and we know is a fact, is that when it suited them, 
agencies of opposing hostile nations did work together. You know, the CIA and the KGB did work occasionally on operations together where it was of mutual benefit. So, you know, I don't think we were ever friends as such with the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War, but it, you grudgingly they would work together, you know, if there was a, a threat facing both of them and they could wipe it out, you know, together, right. so to speak. And one of the things that we do know is that there were people within the British establishment and government that you know, did follow a similar path. I mean, for example, Lord Hill Norton, um, you know, who was a big uh, advocate of Rendlesham. You know, he had a lot of beliefs that went down this sort of occult pathway. You know, he was a good friend and ally to Gordon Crichton, the former editor of Flying Saucer Review, who was heavily into, you know, the demonic gin, you know, Middle Eastern gin type scenario that it was all a, a UFO deception. Um, there are a lot of people in the, you know, the British establishment who followed that same path. Now, because they were tied to the establishment, does that mean, you know, they could have been part of some quasi semi-official think tank similar to the Collins elite? You know, they could have been. Uh, I have to admit, I've never found evidence of a official group in the Ministry of Defence in Britain or Russia or somewhere that was like, you know, the equivalent of Project Blue Book. I've never found anything like that. But I have found people high up in the British establishment that were interested in UFOs and did believe the occult aspect. So, you know, maybe they've had discussions and talks purely and simply because they're, you know, they're well-connected to, to have those talks. Yeah. The whole thing, it's very interesting. Like I said, uh, it really adds a, a whole new layer to the entire history of the UFO phenomenon that mm -hmm. I had never I mean, I'm considered. still digging into it, you know, where I can. It's just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that more data will come forward. But, you know, I do wonder if it's sort of a test in other waters and that a deliberate stance was taken where this is how far we're going to go for now and then, you know, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Well, did you ever hear from these guys, like, after the book came out or anything like that? Um, one or two of them, but a lot of them, it was like, you know, just didn't respond to emails, didn't respond to calls. You know, when I mailed copies of the books out, you know, to the addresses I'd got at least, um, you know, I only got sort of a limited response. And again, that's what makes me, it doesn't make me suspicious of the story, because if it was... If it was all disinformation, I don't think it would be so well constructed and more and believable in the sense of it being, you know, them complaining about budgets and whatever. You know, they would portray themselves as we know this to be fact and we're this all powerful group, you right. know, like MJ12. They didn't come across like that. They came across more vulnerable, you know, and, um, and, uh, and underfunded in some respects, which makes sense. So, but I do believe that you know, things that people might take as suspicious as to how they kind of pretty much cut themselves off from me afterwards. I don't view that as suspicious. I really do think it was more like, um, okay, let's just sit back and see what the response is, you know, and then do we approach somebody else or do we go to somebody in the mainstream media? You know, I think that could be a possibility. You know, we have to remember that our community, the UFO community, is a relatively small one with like a hardcore of several thousand. In other words, although we, we're a hardcore of 3,000 or 4,000 UFO researchers, we're also a wide range of society. You know, you could have somebody who buys UFO books who's a scientist, somebody drives the school bus, you know, somebody's a cop, somebody works in Walmart. We're all across the board, which is good, you know, that we've got a good wide range of people. But if the Collins elite or somebody in government wanted to see what the response was to the book across the board, 
targeting the entire country would be difficult. Why not target our small community, which it knows is made up of variables from, from every walk of life, and see how they responded to it? Maybe that's what it was, like a psychological test, and use the UFO community as like a small version for when they need to sort of try and address what the country as a whole might think, you know. Yeah, exactly. And what makes it, uh, you know, it makes me wonder <laughs> if they think that they they made a mistake in a sense because, you know, kudos to you. Uh, different UFO researchers out there might have taken this stuff and just presented it as fact, if you will, or, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's like that, that's kind of the idea behind disinformation in a lot of ways. We're going to give you this story with the hopes that you're going to go out there and be like, you're not going to believe this. I've got the answer to all this. But really what you yeah. did is you put it out there and you were like right away, hey, this could be disinformation, folks. And, and you know, yeah. it, it was kind of self-defeating you know, in a way, but but on their part, in a sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you always have to be careful how you write about when you present a story. You know, I don't want – I, I do want people to think, you know, I – was dismissing the story or endorsing it. You know, I was just telling the story of the group as it existed and how and why they came to their conclusions. But, you know, I'm not some sort of wide-eyed, slack-jawed, oh, my God, you know, yeah. just swallows everything that comes along. I don't mind relating. You know, unless somebody says to me, I really don't want you to publish what I'm about to tell you. And I, I truthfully don't, you know, if somebody says that. But otherwise, if, you know, if I'm given a story and somebody's okay about publishing it, I'll do it. But if I don't believe the story, I'm, but I'm going to say, you know, I was given this story, just, you know, read it, it's crazy. Or read it because it's interesting, but be aware that I'm not sure, it, even as the person telling it, you know, if we can verify it or if it's real. I think provided you do that and you're honest about the reasons why you're relating the story and what it could mean or what it couldn't mean, you're not going to fall in the pitfall of endorsing disinformation. You know, you could argue that the Majestic 12 documents are disinformation, but nobody really ever wrote about them from the perspective of being disinformation. You, the debunkers said it's just some guy in his basement, you know, with an old typewriter, and the UFO researchers said it's vindication for Roswell. Very few people said, well, maybe, yeah, Roswell did happen, but this is just designed to confuse things even more, you know, and... That's what I tried to do with the Collins Elite story was to say, well, yeah, it's coming from the government, but let's just let's not just, you know, go run into psychiatrists with nervous breakdowns in case it's true. But let's not dismiss it. Let's just try and figure out what's going on by telling the story. Right, right. Exactly. Well, we need more level headed sort of uh, we meet. We need more of that level headed perspective on this, because that may be the only way we're really going to. Well, yeah, the the more controversial something is, the more of a level head rather than a screaming shrill voice you got to have because that don't do anybody any good you know screaming that the world's going to end right yeah. exactly now i got a couple of general sort of questions for you uh just since like we haven't talked in so long um you know we've we did the year in review episodes quite a bit uh, a couple times now and we've and, and you know i'd had the one with greg this past year as well and it, it's followed the sort of pattern where it's moved further and further away from the stories of the year and just sort of <laughs> bemoaning what, what I've called the malaise of ufology. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, it, this sort of struck me as I was reading the pyramids and the Pentagon with the section on crop circles, but it feels like really that we're in like a, like a paranormal stasis 
at this point. Mm. It feels like it's not just UFOs. I mean, there's a lot of really compelling crop circles that have happened this summer, but they're not like setting the world on fire. It, it's an interesting sort of thing well, that we're in right now. I mean, what do you think of that? I, I don't believe – I know a lot of people say, well, you know, Benal, you've been doing this for 10 years. You're jaded about all this stuff. But I mm. still think that it, that can't be the case or it's not the case because, like, if you look back on – the 80s and the 90s, th- there were bigger events. It seemed, but now it just seems like there's this stasis, as I said, this paranormal stasis that's gone on mm. for a while. But I mean, well, no, you, you know. you're right. You're, you're absolutely right, Jim. Because you know, you go back to the 50s. You know, I mean, even the UFO researchers were getting by the dozen every year. Radar reports, pilot encounters. You look at like Keo's books. You know, from the early 50s, jammed with just stuff going on everywhere. You know, South America, landing trace cases, aliens taking soil samples, you know, dogfights over Washington, D.C. Today, it's just like a bunch of YouTube footage, which could go either way, you know, right. real or some kid, you know, face full of spots doing something in the basement or whatever, you know, with the um, latest bit of software. Um, it's like the classic cases have gone, and it's almost like, you know, ufology has become obsessed with the classic cases because we aren't getting classic cases anymore. Right. You know, it's like it's like a lot of ufology has been reduced to turf wars of just still arguing over Socorro or Roswell. You know, I understand they're intriguing and potentially very important cases, but, you know, 50 years after Socorro almost, 65 years after Roswell, as a movement, we should really be trying to take the future further and the present, not just still arguing over how many bodies were found at Roswell. Yeah. That doesn't doesn't take away the significance of it. But you're right. I think in today's world, you know, you can go back to the 80s. You know, when when the Majestic 12 documents surfaced, you know, again, regardless of what people think about them, regardless of what people think about Gulf Breeze, Bob Lazar, there was a tremendous push and a popularity and, a you know, things going on. And ironically, the subject today is more visible, but less is happening. It's like, you know, there's countless TV shows on um, on UFOs, reality TV shows. But to use an English for, um, phrase, they're total bollocks. Yeah. You know, reality TV, I mean, if I have to see another group of people running around a haunted house, a wood, a forest, <laughs> or some old military place saying... What the hell was that at midnight with night scope equipment? You know, I think I'll, I'll blow my head off my shoulders. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, and, but the, the ironic thing is, there's a saturation of paranormal shows, but nothing's going on in them. Right. You know, it's like investigating Bigfoot. Oh, well, we'll go out at night where we can't see anything. You know, <laughs> Bigfoot's still, if Bigfoot's real, it's still around in the day. You know. <laughs> exactly. You're why probably more apt you, to find it. It's probably sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why go out to investigate a UFO hotspot when it's pitch black? Well, the reason they do it is because night scope footage looks atmospheric. And these shows aren't about solving mysteries or, invest, or investigating stuff. They're about creating entertainment. And the problem is, one of the reasons why ufology is in such doldrums is because investigative work is being replaced by entertainment. And when that happens, it just causes disaster. You know, we need to get back to the grassroots. But the other problem is we're not getting those grassroots 
classic reports anymore. It's like the phenomenon has changed as well. You know, um, not just ufology hasn't just changed in terms of being a, the medium of this or that. The, the cases and the phenomena itself has altered it, the way it sort of manifests and whatever. I mean, even abductions, you know, they aren't on, reported on the scale as they were in, say, the 80s. Right. You know, when it was like a, it was almost like a plague, you know, it was like a zombie virus. Everybody was infected, you know, by abductions. Right, right. Like, that's kind of the, that's kind of the line I was drawn to the the crop circle thing. And then you can go to, like, cattle mutilations. I mean, I'm sure they're still happening, but they're not, I don't know, it hasn't crossed some line of, of, of Oh, God, well, I mean, when I, you know, as you know, I'm originally from England. I can remember 1990, 1989, 1991 when crop circles were literally the main story on the BBC News. Wow. I mean, with, you know, when uh, the whole thing with Colin Andrews and, you know, was at its height, you know, it was a mainstream BBC News, this formation's been found. And, um, and there was like this cultural time, like a peak for a while, where everybody in the nation was just, oh, my God, you know, what's going to happen? You know, is this it? You know, are the aliens going to land? And that's not a joke or an exaggeration. You know, kind of like when... An entire culture briefly gets behind something. It was like that. Right. Um, but today, no, oh yeah, more crop circles, you know, it's good for the tourists and there'll be nice colour photographs splashed across, you know, this newspaper or that newspaper. And it's just become, that's what it is. You know, it, it's the wonderment, if you like, has gone. And maybe it's, part of it is just the jadedness of people, you know, seen it before, done it before, whatever, you know right. what I mean? Right. I think part of it is that. But I think equally, you know, it's like maybe maybe some of these phenomena, whatever they are, have given up on us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I, I, I've said that on the show before, where I, I've likened yeah. the UFO phenomenon to like an ex-girlfriend, where it's like, you know, <laughs> we had some yeah, good I mean, times. You want, to be, but... you want to stay in touch. You want to do the right thing. But you know, at the end of the day, it's. I mean, joking aside, maybe to to put it bluntly. You know, maybe that there were, there was a period when whatever this phenomenon is, has tried to get us to do the right thing, and we've constantly screwed up. You know, we're destroying the planet, people are getting unhealthier and bigger, you know, yeah. pollution's getting worse, there's deforestation, and maybe in, in alien terms, somebody has just literally said, fuck them. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe that is what's happened, and what we're seeing now is just the residual after effects of of some phenomenon that bit by bit is slowly leaving, going away, leaving, yeah. whatever, you know, and uh, occasionally it stays around or somebody thinks, you know, the equivalent of, well, let's, I'll give them a try for the next couple of months. And they're like, fine, you're on your own. We're going, you know. Right, right, right. Um, like, a, like monthly checkups or like annual checkups or, you know. Yeah, and they, they, and they become bi-monthly and then yearly. And then it's like, well, you know, the infestation spread in, sorry. There's no, you know, it's like the equivalent. We can't do any more chemotherapy for you, you know. We're very sorry, but... Right. You know, you shouldn't have smoked for 50 years or whatever, you know. I'm doing my best to quit. I'm doing my best, Nick. (laughs) Good man. (laughs) Now, what about um, the other thing, um, just on a wholly sort of broad perspective, because I I think, uh, you know, you know I like to look at these sort of things on 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 a big scale. I find it kind of interesting... Here we are, it's the long-awaited 2012, and even 2012 has sort of gone to the back burner. I'm sure it'll ramp up as we get towards December, but it's, <laughs> it's sure interesting. That. Everyone was all worked up about 2012, but I haven't heard too much about it this year. Maybe everyone's just sort of well, trepidatious about what's going to happen. 
Well, I think, unfortunately, in today's world, it's very easy to frighten people, you know, and people do, you know, get hysterical and whatever, and, um, and it's, but, you know, people also have a short attention span, so it's like when he goes away, they forget about it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like bird flu. I mean, I never got inoculated with bird flu. I had people around me said, oh, the nation's, yeah, everybody's going to get bird flu, we're all going to die. I said, well, fine, go and queue up at the nearest pharmacy and get your bird flu injection. Who, th who remembers that now? Everybody's forgotten about it, all those doomsday stories. You know, and, and I think that's like 2012. And it probably will, and I'm sure it'll resurface the closer and closer we get to December the 21st. But, you know, I don't think anything's going to happen. And I think by December the 21st of the next year, it'll be as forgotten as Y2K. But people are easy to whip up into a frenzy when it is big news. Yeah. But equally, they, they, they quickly forget as well. So. Yeah. It'll, uh, it'll be interesting to see how all this unfolds. And, and you know, to, to go back to that idea of the paranormal stasis, uh, you know, like I said earlier, I got to give you credit because you're, you're putting out fresh stuff. You're putting out, you know, stuff well, that I hasn't really been done before. To. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if, truthfully, I'm not just saying this. If, you know, I was thinking about a new idea for a book and I couldn't find anything new, specifically new to write about, I would never go down the path of doing, you know, a roundup of the top 50 famous abduction stories. You know, do five pages regurgitated from somebody's book on Betty and Barney Hill and then five right. pages on the Andreasen case or whatever, or Whitley Strieber, where it's all been published before. Because there's just no point. You know, if you're going to write a book, it's like you with a radio show. You want to get guests on who've got something fresh and new to say. You know, yeah, it's great to have somebody who's been in the field 50 years and who gives you all their background, you know, and you do a sort of like paying homage to them type show. That's that's cool. But you, I'm sure you wouldn't want just a show that is a roundup of everything we know about this case or that case for two right. hours. You know, it's, it's pointless. Exactly. So, you know, my, one of my criteria has always been whether people agree with me or not or like me or not. I don't really care, you know, but I do try and put out new data. You know, whether people agree with it or not, because what's the point of doing it otherwise? You know, it's just, there is no point. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that, yeah, you kind of hit what we've been doing here on the show. People always yeah. seem to link me to UFOs, but if you look at the archive, we haven't really done too yeah. many UFO shows like in the last couple of years, because it's, mm -hmm. you know, as I said earlier. Because I, you got so much else new to talk about. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now, speaking of new, what, uh, you <laughs> said you get the new book coming out around Halloween. What do you have on the horizon? Uh, you know, not just this year, but, you know, in the future. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, that, that one, The World's Weirdest Places, comes out sort of October time, which is a you know study of my favorite sort of top 25 paranormal hotspots around the planet. Um, and then I've also done one for Patrick Weege's Anomalous Books, which is called Monster Diary. That'll be, I think that might be out before the end of the year as well. It's basically, um, you know, I do my, write my cryptozoological books very different to you know, things like final events or body snatchers, which is just like a straightforward relating of the facts. But because, you know, the, the crypto stuff I do, the monster hunting is all on the road stuff, I wrote it, I write, excuse me, I write it as like a, a road trip style. Yeah. You know, um, I sort of hit the road at midnight, you know, and drove down this foggy road in search of whatever. You know, I like to write it as it actually happens. So 
that one will be out, Monster Diary, I think probably before the end of the year, definitely not before the world's weirdest places. That would be too much overkill, even, <laughs> even for me. You know, people would be like, just go away for a while. And I wouldn't blame them. You know, even I wouldn't blame them for saying that. But yeah, but that'll be out after that, I think possibly round about the end of the, the year. Then um, I'm working on another crypto book for... Again, I'm not sure when that'll be out, but I think into 2013. That's called Wild Man, and that's going to be published in Britain. It's all about Bigfoot and Wild Man type reports from Britain, which you actually, they're actually a surprisingly massive amount of reports, but most of them have sort of paranormal aspects to them or 14 aspects. Um, and so it, it addresses a subject again that's not really been the subject of a book before, Bigfoot in Britain. Yeah. Um, so that'll be out, and then, I just weird, really weirdly, like you said, I was actually being given a lot of consideration to the idea of a book about what the government knows about these so-called cryptid animals. Yeah, I would love and that. And also, I'm also working on a book which, um, when um, you know, I've done these two Men in Black books uh, on the trail of the Source of Spies and the Real Men in Black. It actually prompted a lot of people to come forward with their own Men in Black stories, which had never been published before, and. I've you know, everybody who is willing to have their stories published has now sort of given their permission and they're all speaking on the record, nobody's speaking off the record or whatever. Nice. And so I'm doing a book which is basically a collection of the stories in their own words, no interruptions from me, but then with like a comment section afterwards, like a comment slash analysis thing of each case from me. So it's like case one, case two, then Nick's analysis of, of the case. Um, you know, there's something like 50 or 60... Brand, when I say brand new, I mean some of them are old, but just never been discussed before. But in that sense, you know, sort of 50, 60 brand new MIB cases, you know, spanning the 40s to the present day, literally. Nice. Um, you know, and trying to, this will be sort of the third MIB book I've done, which I think I might make these an on, ongoing thing because I'm quite interested in all the MIB stuff. And uh, there's certainly enough material, you know, to sort of, again, if I bring something fresh to, you know, keep trying to dig into who these MIB are. Awesome, awesome. So you got a lot going on. I'm looking forward to it. And like yeah, I said, there's always the, the blogging and you know um, articles for websites and that sort of stuff. Lecturing. I'm speaking at the Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis okay, um, yep. in October, um, and this month I've got um, two. Excuse me, September I've got two lectures. Uh, one for a, a Dallas-based group called the uh, Extraordinary Phenomenal Investigations Council, EPIC. That'll be um, the third weekend in September. Then the last weekend, the Saturday night, I'm speaking at the Austin Center for Spiritual Living in Austin, Texas, on Pyramids and the Pentagon. So there'll be those two in September, the Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis in October, where there'll actually be a lot of um, sort of ancient astronaut people, like um, Eric Von Daniken speaking there. Yeah, that's a big event. Been, that's definitely yeah, a big event. Yeah, Marie Jones will be there. Um, Larry Flaxman, you know, they did, um, the, Marie did the 2012 book. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there'll be a lot of uh, interesting lectures, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. If I had any money, I'd be there. But <laughs> Well, I maybe can't. they'll cover it if you say you're going to promote it or whatever. You never That's know. true. I don't know. I see how much it costs to fly to Minneapolis, yeah. but maybe maybe it can be done. Well, I can't thank you enough, Nick. Like I said at the beginning, uh, you know, it's been way too long since I had you on the program for a pure paranormal discussion, and it's not going to be another five years before we do it again because <laughs> there's just so much stuff to cover uh that I, I just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and the time flew by. That's all I can yeah, tell. It it's been a good show. It, it's like already been over two hours, and I'm just stunned by that. 
Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I had a good time. I mean, we could covered a lot of ground, you know, and a lot of areas and sort of demystified a lot of stuff and, you know, covered a lot of paradigms and ideas. And uh, I'll have to try and get back out to your area as well at some point and uh, come and hang out for some of that good beer again. Absolutely. Absolutely, my friend. Uh, the Pyramids and the Pentagon, that's from New Page Books. Final events is from Anomalous Books, and there's just, as we've said over the course of this conversation, tons and tons more books by Nick Redfern. Folks, go out and pick them up. You will love them. Thank you once again for coming on the show, Nick. Thanks a lot, Tim. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Nick Redfern for coming back on the show and giving us so much time. Be sure to check out the two books which we discussed here on the program this week, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, as well as Final Events. And if you want to know more about Nick Redfern, head on over to his website, www.nickredfern14.blogspot.com. Pretty simple, all one word, nickredfern14.blogspot.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and we've got four quick messages here from the BOA Audio Listeners, so let's dive on in. First one comes from Sandra in Liverpool, England, and here's what she has to say. Just a quick message to say a big thank you for your fantastic interviews. I have had my eyes opened over the years, and your podcast is right up there at the top of my faves. I love your technique, and you impress me when you don't force your opinion, which must be hard sometimes, but you do a really great job. Thanks, Sandra in Liverpool, England. Well, thank you, Sandra, for writing in. Much appreciated, and really uh, humbling kudos on the program. I am very thankful for your kind words. Part of the reason why I picked this email here, beyond the fact that Sandra was writing to us, from Liverpool, England, and you all know I love the international listeners, was her thoughts on my technique and how I don't force my opinion on the listeners or the guest. That is, of course, a conscious decision on my part. You'd be amazed how many people I meet who want to know what I really think of all this stuff, want to know my thoughts on a whole bunch of different paranormal mysteries, and confess that they cannot decipher it from listening to the program. I take a great deal of pride in that because it is my job really to get the guests on here and have them present their work and have the listeners decide. I don't want to sway people's opinion on the veracity of the guests' material. Although I think people who've been listening a long enough time will be able to really kind of figure out where I stand on a number of issues. But there are plenty which sit in my gray basket, and I'm just willing to sort of give it the benefit of the doubt and wait to see whether it's proven right or wrong. I just really enjoy the mystery aspect of all this, and trying to get to the bottom of it is the goal of the program, but at the same time, the journey is as much the reward as is the final answers. Next email comes from Joshua. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I have a theory about irrational fear of clowns. I believe that the reason some adults have an irrational fear of clowns is because they were abducted as children. I remember some researchers saying that aliens would mask themselves as a child-loving image to remove fear. I believe clowns are being used by the abductors. However, after so many abductions, the child becomes afraid of clowns, 
as they have always led to a terrifying experience, a fear they cannot understand, but very real. What do you think of this, Joshua? I don't know what to think of that, Joshua. That's an interesting theory, although I'm skeptical in a sense, because clowns really are kind of creepy in and of themselves. Just looking at them and their bizarre face paint kind of puts a chill down many people's spines, whether they've been abducted or not. I suppose aliens disguising themselves as clowns to abduct children has probably happened in the past, but I'm not sure it's as rampant as you kind of put forward here in this hypothesis. Because I think we probably would have more anecdotes or revelations about this clown abduction theory, and I've never really heard it put forward in a big way by anybody in the abduction research community, which of course is already fraught with all sorts of problems in and of itself. It's certainly something worth considering. Uh, it's definitely something that's given me pause and had me take a second look at clowns, which I never thought I'd be doing. But as I said, I don't think it's as rampant as you think, but anything's possible. Probably more in this modern age, I'd think that aliens would be disguising themselves as whatever little kids are into nowadays, because clowns are really antiquated, and they're not as big as they were in the 50s and 60s, for sure. So maybe nowadays the clowns are disguising themselves, as I said, uh, as figures in children's entertainment beyond clowns. But definitely something worth considering, and those are my thoughts on it, and I'd be interested in hearing what the BOA Audio listeners think about this uh, clown theory. And, of course, thank you for writing in Joshua. Next email comes from Marty in Paisley, Scotland. Here's what he has to say. Just started catching up with Season 7. Wow, great shows. The Cruise Line episode was definitely disturbing. I, like you, was getting mad listening to the outrageous crimes that are being committed aboard these ships, and have to ask why the governments of the countries where these victims come from are not actively acting on the victims' families' behalf to give them closure, but instead seem to be turning the other cheek. I wonder if a government's official was a victim, would there be any other outcome other than what was stated on the show? Outrageous. Again, great shows. Keep up the great standard and content. Marty from Paisley, Scotland. Thank you for writing in, Marty. I think, based on what Kendall Carver was telling us on the program a few episodes ago, it definitely seems like the U.S. government is stonewalling getting behind investigating these crimes. There certainly seems to be evidence that that is the case. Around the world, however, I think countries like the UK and Australia, I think perhaps their government officials are in turn being stonewalled by the cruise ship companies. There is really quite a disconnect between these ships out at sea and the folks on the land where you really got to get to the bottom of these crimes very quickly. And that disconnect, as well as the purposeful stonewalling by the cruise ship industry, opens up a huge vacuum of time where perpetrators of these crimes quite simply just get away with what they've done. There's a big problem, as Kendall Carver said on the program, and it's still resonating here with the listeners as evidenced by what Marty has said. And as far as if a government official's family was a victim, I'm sure we'd see a very different approach 
to this whole issue. But ironically enough, doesn't it always seem like governments, families never are victims of these bizarre crimes or disappearances or strange happenings? You never hear of a government official's son or daughter being abducted by an alien or go missing in a national park. These things simply just do not happen to them. I don't know what that's all about, but it's definitely something worth considering. Thank you again, of course, for writing in Marty from Paisley, Scotland. And the final message this week comes from Flap Doodle in Austin, Texas, and this was posted on our BOA Facebook page. And here's what Flap Doodle has to say. Haunted objects? I need to listen again. I think Robert the Doll did something to me during his segment. The last thing I remember when listening is the mention of his name. His? OMG, now I'm doing it. Flap Doodle in Austin, Texas. Kind of a funny one there to wrap things up. That was posted on the Banal of America Facebook page. Please allow me to plug it here before I respond to Flap Doodle. Head on over to Facebook, punch in Banal of America. We've got an official page there. If you have not yet and you want to and can, please like us on Facebook. We're trying to get to a thousand likes. And as I reflected on during last week's program, there really is no reward for a thousand likes. It's just a moronic milestone to aim for. Nonetheless, head on over to Banal of America on Facebook and like us. With regards to what Flap Doodle has to say, I really don't have much of a response to that, although I presume that he or she enjoyed the program. I was really spooked out by that episode, to be quite honest with you. I enjoyed it quite a bit, but after I hung up the phone, after talking to Chris and Tim, I was a little just chilled by how strange some of that stuff was. It's one thing to be pestered by a ghost. You can kind of put your finger on it, even though it is pretty bizarre and odd that you got to deal with a ghost haunting you. But if it's an object, how do you even deal with that? That's the weird part. And Robert the Doll and the story of the persistently haunted poster board that had the bloody Our Father on it. Just creepy stuff. Really creepy stuff. I, I hope that you uh, did go back to listen to the program again. Flap Doodle and beware of Robert the Doll. Treat him with respect and he will protect you. Disrespect him and he will curse you. Creepy stuff, folks. And on that note, we'll zip up the BOA Audio Listener Feedback Mailbag for this week. Big thanks to Flap Doodle in Austin, Texas for writing in. Thanks to Marty from Paisley, Scotland for writing in. Thanks to Joshua and Sandra in Liverpool, England for also writing in. If you'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, there are a number of ways to get in touch with me. You can simply head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, ofamerica.com, and click the Contact button, or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And if you want something a little more interactive, there are two highly interactive ways to get in touch with me, you can join up at the official POA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. That is POA's Paranormal Playground, our official message board where we talk about the world of the paranormal as well as pop culture. And additionally, if you want some interactive goodness, 
join up at the official BOA page on Facebook. Just punch in Banal of America and you'll find it on there very quickly and easily. And, of course, I am on Facebook and Twitter, so feel free to search out Banal and befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And now, please allow me to pause and give thanks to the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me, I have yet to post new columns from the BOA staff, but I am sitting on an all-new Trickster's Realm from Regan Lee, as well as an all-new Esotericana from Tina Senna. Those will be posted at Banal of America later on this week, so be sure to head on over to BOA for additional insights from the BOA staff. BOA, make it a part of your search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time in the program where I turn to you, the hardcore BOA audio listeners, and ask you to help us out via a donation to the BOA franchise. How do you do that? That's simple. There are two ways to do so. You can head on over to Benal of America and click the PayPal button. It's on the left-hand side of the screen. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But what if you don't trust the Internet? What if you want to donate via snail mail? Well, you can do that, folks. You can send your donations to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866, and you spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. The complete address can be found at Benal of America underneath the PayPal button. And if you mail us a donation, please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America because my bank is anal and will not cash those donations. And please include some form of correspondence so I can write you back and thank you for your donation. As always, it is worth noting here, folks, no donation is too small and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio, I meant to mention this at the beginning of this program, but we've got sort of a plan here as we roll through the rest of 2012 Let's say, for instance, the world is going to end on December 21st, 2012. What's the best way, really, to get us prepared for that? That is to welcome back some of the classic guests from the program, longtime friends of the show, starting with this week's program here with Nick Redfern, going all the way through 2012, bringing back some old friends of the show. So on the next edition of the program, it's only, frighteningly, two short weeks away from Thanksgiving, which means it's time once again for our now annual holiday tradition known as Rocksgiving, where we welcome back the extremely popular Bruce Rucks to be away audio. Of course, we had Bruce on in July for what was a somber and solemn edition of the program talking about the Aurora shootings. This time around, it's going to be much lighter as we 
bring Bruce on the program for a jam session covering the world of the esoteric, covering UFOs, covering all sorts of stuff. I could tell you more, but I haven't even taped the episode yet. Probably going to tape it next week. But I have gotten confirmation from Bruce that he is in for Rucks Giving 2012. So that will be the next edition of the program. And since I'm talking to the hardcore BOA audio listeners, I'll give you a little teaser for what's to come in the weeks leading up to the end of 2012. We're going to be welcoming back longtime friends of the show, Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman, for a mind-bending edition of the program talking about time travel. And we'll also have another longtime friend of the show, Paul Kimball, talking about his new book, The Other Side of Truth. And by the time you hear those two episodes, again, frighteningly enough, it will be time for the holidays. So we'll be having, I hope, the legendary Stan Friedman on for our annual holiday special and our good buddy Greg Bishop for the year in review wrap-up. If you're someone who wants to hear new guests, you want to hear fresh folks on the program, do not be dismayed because I've already lined up a bunch of amazing guests for the beginning of 2013 and going forward. So we're going to have a lot of old friends here on the show as we wrap up the year. And then once 2013 kicks off, we're going to have some truly tremendous folks on the program to help us get the new year started in a big way. So that's pretty much the state of the program here as we close out the year. Next week on the program, the amazing Bruce Rucks joins us for Rucksgiving 2012. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Nick Redfern for coming on the show. Big thanks to Sandra in Liverpool, England, Joshua, Marty from Paisley, Scotland, and Flapdoodle in Austin, Texas, for their contributions to BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the folks who tune in to the very end of the show. You guys are the best. Thank you for your enduring support of this program. It is truly humbling and tremendously appreciated. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.